TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates Father's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. And a 1-2 pitch. And it's punched to right. Bats coming over. He will make the catch on the run. He was shaded that way. Got a great jump off the bat. And Mookie Betts runs it down. Mm. Wow. No runs. One hit. Two left. And we're going to the ninth. Phillies down. Three nothing. Uh, well, here, Ray, here's the good news. They scored a run. Which yeah. distinguished it from the day before. Right. Um, they lost uh, to the Dodgers at home. Uh, after that really impressive, encouraging road trip, the Phillies came home. <laughs> they cannot score. Uh, they had, entering the homestand, they led Major League Baseball in slugging percentage in OPS. And I, I don't know where it stands now, but it has fallen. Ray, I'm going to give you a statistic, and then I kind of want your sense. Oh, good morning, everybody. He's Ray Dinger. I'm Glenn Mack now. It is a sweltering Saturday morning in the Delaware Valley, getting up to 97 degrees. Ray, I'm impressed that you wore a long sleeve shirt and long pants. <laughs> good luck with that. Uh, I, d- I didn't put much thought <laughs> into it when I left. They used to just were hanging there, and I grabbed them. And then it, I took two steps outside the front door, and I said, um, I think I'm overdressed. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a little too late to turn back then. Yeah, well, you and I will leave this studio together at 1 o'clock today, and that whatever six-block walk back to your apartment is going to be a doozy. Uh, okay, so the, I, I read this statistic yesterday. Somebody posted online. I, I would like to give credit, and I'm sorry I didn't see who posted it. This is heading into last night. The Phillies were 10-10 and 10 in their last 20 games, 25-25 and 25 in their last 50 games, and 100 and 100, 100 wins, 100 losses in their last 200 games. Ray, <laughs> that is dedication to mediocrity. It's the definition of mediocrity yeah. right there. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I hadn't seen those numbers. Um, I had seen some other numbers. I had seen JT Real Muto, tw- two for 24. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had seen Nick Castellanos, who's been very good up to this point, but is now five for his last 38. Yeah. Um, seen a lot of those numbers. The Phillies, eight runs in five games without Bryce Harper. So uh, a lot of numbers that point towards uh, some issues with the offense, which going into this season isn't something you and I thought would be talking about. thought it might be talking about issues in the bullpen, maybe issues in the field, perhaps issues in the starting rotation. But we didn't think we'd be talking about issues with the offense. But there they are. Time to burn the bats. Remember that old tradition? Yeah. Team slump. Throw all the bats in a pile in the clubhouse and burn them. Let's go back to that. 
Or as they did in Bull Durham when the manager threw the bats into the showers. Remember that? Yes. Bunch of lollygaggers. That was the greatest. <laughs> you lollygag to first base. You lollygag to the – you know what that makes them? Lollygaggers. That's great. All right. That was, that. That, that was one of many, many great scenes in that movie. Terrific. All right. Uh, let us move on. Uh, Eagles make a big move this week. It's Wednesday, I think. They add cornerback James Bradbury from the Giants. By the way, credit to Jody McDonald, who I worked with last week, who implored Howie Roseman on the air to sign Bradbury and said it was going to make all the sense in the world and, and predicted it, as mm-hmm. a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they do it uh, after it's released by the Giants. The Giants released him. There were t- 11 teams interested in him, and the Giants somehow could not swing a trade. Right. They are they're an inept front office. But nonetheless, he comes here. Seems obvious, Ray. Secondary was a weak spot. I mean, I'd still like to see him get a safety, but – you know, pairing him with Steven Nelson, they just got a lot better, right? He knows the division. He it helps Jonathan Cannon. What do you think? Uh, I thought it was a good signing. Um, I uh, Last time I was on with you, I was talking about Bradbury as a guy that likely was going to hit the market. And if he did, I said, Howie Roseman, you got to be first in line here. And I knew there'd be teams that would be bidding for him. Nobody wanted to trade for his contract. That's what it came down to. People were willing to trade right. for the player. Right. They wanted the player, but nobody wanted the contract. $21 million. Again, ineptitude by the Giants. Yeah, so the Giants thought they could trade him. They couldn't. Everybody just sat back and waited for him to hit the market. And so the Eagles wind up getting a $21 million player for $7 million. And, Sweet. Yeah, and they and they had to get that other corner. I mean, they just had to get that other corner. They, they feel like they've got, you know, a sleigh. They'll get the one corner pretty much nailed down. But the other one was just who knows. And now you get James Bradbury, who two years ago – was was really good. I was one of the best corners in the NFL. Well, certainly one of the best corners in the NFC, and you could argue maybe the NFL was a pro Bowl player that year and was really good. Last year, not so much. You know, last year was a bad year, but it was a bad year for the Giants generally. So you, you kind of think of maybe he's a good player that got caught in a bad situation and can bounce back. At 29, that's realistic expectation. But um, real good player. Uh, they got him on a one-year deal. Uh, and uh, with he and Slay... I mean, they've got they've got a really good pair of cornerbacks yeah. right now. My only fear they've signed free agents secondary in the secondary before. They had a really tough time blending in here. I I don't know if it's the position. I don't know if it was the system under Reed and Chip Kelly and Doug or what. But uh, I'm hoping he's not Namdi Asamoah. I'm hoping he's not uh, you know Byron Maxwell. I mean, we've seen it. But the Eagles have improved their defense a lot this off season. Hassan Raddick with the pass rush. Uh, Jordan Davis up the middle, the rookie, and have big expectations for him. They actually got some some real linebackers, right? Mm-hmm. And Kaiser White, and uh, they drafted Nicobe Dean. So, Ray, um, as I was coming back from out of town yesterday, I spent the week up in Cape Cod, which was lovely, and uh, everything I've read and watching TV and listening – I am seeing. I'll just. I'll just tell you that uh, your pal Barrett Brooks was doing a stand-up yesterday under the uh, uh, with the Chiron rating. The Eagles are now legitimate NFC contenders, mm-hmm. and I'm seeing this everywhere. Super Bowl or bust. Ray, there is a two-word phrase that you have used before. Hold on. Let me dig into the archives. Reality check. <laughs> I remember that day. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to bust people's dreams, and maybe they are going to go to the Super Bowl this year because we certainly didn't think it was going to happen when it did happen in 2017, so it could happen again. But um, I guess I am going to 
uh, well, I'm going to ask you, is it time for a reality check? Um, I don't want to spoil anybody's uh, yeah, neither do I. M- Memorial Day weekend here. <laughs> but? Uh, but, yeah, I think you kind of have to temper it a little bit. Uh, but it's not, I mean, it's not as if NBC Sports Philly pulled this out of thin air. I mean, there are people around the country, some uh, sports pundits, some NFL experts, uh, guys in the media who I have seen, say, I have seen say um, that the Eagles, I don't know that anybody's gone so far as said NFC, team to beat in the a- NFC but I've seen people say they think the Eagles may now be the team to beat in the NFC East uh, and that they're okay. the best team in the NFC East right now. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd be willing to have that discussion with you. I think, they've, I think they have improved significantly. They were a playoff team last year. They weren't that far away, although when they got to the playoffs and they went up against the Buccaneers, you saw how far away they were from those teams. That's part of it. Um, but I, I think they are, should be very improved on defense. Uh, we already kind of know what they have on offense. Adding A.J. Brown is only going to make them better in the passing game. But it still comes down to the quarterback. Yeah. It still comes down to the quarterback. So I think the people have reason to be excited and enthusiastic, but the idea that, well, now they are the team to beat in the NFC is probably a stretch. Okay. Here's the deal today. Uh, I think, as people know, Ray is retiring at the end of the month. If I'm just giving you that notice now, I apologize. I hope you don't drive your car off the road. But. That means we have four shows left, including today. And today, uh, our last hour of the show, actually, is going to be a, a pretty special one. Why don't you tee this up? It's going to be, yes, as I, with, with my departure, we're also bringing to a close the feature that you and I created a couple, a couple years ago now called Tell Us Your Story, which was uh, created because of the pandemic. When it shut down sports, we kind of figured, okay, when, now what are we going to talk about? And you came up, and I give you credit for this. I mean, you came up with the idea of these long-form interviews. Uh, just get somebody from the world of sports, either a player, coach, broadcaster, media member, somebody, and just have them come on, and we'll just talk for an hour and have them tell us their story. And so it's been going on, and you did the count that last week. You sent me the list, 108 interviews we did in that period of time, and really good ones, really, really, really good ones. Uh, and so – what we're going to do today to bring the whole series to a close is we're going to do a one-hour best-of Tell Us Your Stories where we're going to take some highlights from, from some of these interviews over the years and just give you a little, bring you back down memory lane with what we did here and give you a little taste of what that series is all about. Nice. Also, uh, at 11 today, uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying to book some of your favorite people before you are done. So at 11 o'clock today, a guy you have a long history with, not always pleasant, but came to be really good. So we're going to talk about the development of that relationship. Dick Vermeil is going to join us at 11. Always a great guest and particularly poignant today. Uh, we're going to take some calls. There is one right now on hold I'm going to grab in just a moment. Um, but so I just want to tell people we will take some calls, and certainly I want to give people the opportunity to give Ray well wishes, but not, we're not going to have a lot of time. So what I did yesterday is I went on social media, Ray. I'm not sure if you caught this on social media. Uh, pr- probably probably escaped my attention, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I posted on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Um, if you have a question for Ray, shoot it here. And I'll run as many of them by Ray as I can before our final show next week. So that's something that we are going to do. I'm going to have you tell some of the great stories uh, from over the years. Uh, I'm going to have some of these questions posed to you all over the place about your career, about your legacy, about the business, about 
you know, what's your favorite water ice in Philadelphia? Just people sent me. I posted it yesterday, and this morning I looked, and there were more than 400 <laughs> questions posed. So I'm not going to be able to get to all those, but I'm going to get to as many as I can. Okay. Uh, and before that, actually, a guy who was an extremely good guest on Tell Us Your Story recently, a real pleasure, uh, our pal Mitch Williams checks in. Mitchy Poo. Hey, guys. How are you all doing? Hello, Mitch. Great to hear from you again. That You know, that was a really good Tell Us Your Story. I've had so many people tell me since that show that that was one of their favorites. So thanks a lot. Thank you, guys. I appreciate, appreciate it a lot. Uh, before I get to you, Ray, I want to tell the football fans here in Philly, if Jalen Hurts actually did go to Tom House's camp, I can tell you from, a pers- from personal experience, if Jalen does what Tom House teaches, he is going to have a tremendous year this year. For people who don't know, Tom House was a major league reliever, relief pitcher, back in the 70s? 70s. Yeah. He, he caught Hank Aaron's 715th right. home run in the bullpen. The that's, bullpen. that's what he's most remembered for. That's, You're correct. That's correct. Well, Tom, Tom was my pitching co- coach and solely responsible for getting me to the big leagues. If I didn't have him, I know I would have never – Never pitched a day in the big league. Right, and he has expanded that into teaching, throwing of all at all in all sports, including football. So that's a great but, point. Um, Mitch. He is a kinesiologist. He knows how every muscle in your body works. So for him, when I watched Jalen last year, his bad throws are simply because his delivery is way too long and they're late. So if he can get to the point where he releases the football and that football never drops down below his belt, you're going to see a totally different quarterback this year. Good stuff. What do you have to say to Ray? Okay, for the people of Philly, you have had the pleasure of listening to probably the most classy individual I've ever heard in the media. And I mean that sincerely, Ray. You are the epitome of fair. And that, as a player, is all you can ask for. So I thank you for everything you've done here in Philly. And I feel blessed to have been able to listen to you. Well, thanks, Mitch. I appreciate that. And uh, I appreciate the you know the occasions I've had an opportunity to talk to you and interview you over the years. I always found you to be a straight stand-up guy. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's how I'll remember you. And I, you know, I always, I always, what you said is always what I strive to be. I tried to be fair. I wasn't a guy that went out of his way to create controversy. If it was nope. there, if it was there, I didn't avoid it. If it was there, I would certainly discuss it. But I, I wasn't there to create it. And uh, I always tried to be fair and respectful. Because one of the things I never lost sight of, Mitch, never ever, was how tough those games are to play. How tough it is to play in the big leagues. How tough it is to play in the NFL. Sometimes people lose sight of that. It's hard what you guys do. And I, well, I, ne- I never lost sight of that fact. Well, you never have. And I'll tell you, when I got into broadcasting, the only thing I wanted to do was remove. Oh. I was going to point out I made 100 times myself. Well, and you always did. And, Mitch, uh, listen, you can't be a stranger going forward, though. Oh, no. Okay. I would. As long as I'm around, you'll hear from me from time to time. I promise you. But, uh, Ray, I hope you enjoy your retirement. Have a blast. You have earned it. Thanks, Mitch. Thank I appreciate you, Mitch. that, and I, I appreciate I appreciate our friendship over the years. He was he's really a good fellow. Absolutely. Uh, all right, I'm going to give you some questions uh, posed by uh, your fans. Okay, shoot. Uh, let's just start. I'm just going to kind of do this randomly. Ian, 
uh, sent me the note that said, in an alternate reality, if sports did not exist, what would Ray's career have been? Teacher. Would have been a teacher. Uh, you have been a good one. Hopefully a good one. Um, but it, uh, sports High school, does, college? Sports, sports doesn't exist. Is that what he says? Yeah, if sports okay. did not okay, exist. Okay, then that takes coaching out, right? Yeah. So I couldn't have been. If I, if I went to a school, I yeah, couldn't coach. You can't coach. be a teacher and be the baseball coach. Right, so okay. You're just a teacher. That's probably, in a perfect world, that's probably what it would have been. Would have been an English teacher and a, and a coach. Uh, but um, if we're taking sports out of the equation, then I would have been a teacher. I would. I, I think I would have enjoyed. I would have enjoyed teaching English. I would have enjoyed teaching history. I All think right. I would have been. I think I would have enjoyed being a teacher. All right. Eric says Ray is hosting a dinner. He has five seats at the table. Hold on, I can't read this thing. Uh, each seat has to be one member ever. Not doesn't have to be current. Eagles, Sixers, Phillies, Flyers, and Philadelphia media. Who are you having for dinner? Wow. Can I think about that over the break? You can. I'm not ready to take the break, but you can think about it. Oh, let me because that's that's one. That yeah, I'm going to be if I if I give oh. you off the top of my head, then that's I'm going to be. All right. I'm going to be saying, oh, I should have yeah, said. Why didn't I? Okay. Right. This one I I know off the top of your head. Uh, this gentleman asks, can Ray tell his worst tra- travel experience ever <laughs> coming a game? Oh yeah, that's easy. <laughs> don't need. I don't need any time to sort that one out. Yeah, it was drive back from the Meadowlands. Uh, what year was this? It was um, ish nineties, nineties. Okay. Okay. Uh, driving back from the Meadowlands. It was it was it was not an Eagles Giants game. It was an Eagles Jets game. Oh. Uh, and um, I went up there to cover the game and parked in the parking lot. Um, think nothing of it. Go in, cover my game. Come out. Obviously, I'm the last one out of the press box as I always was. So the parking lot is completely <laughs> deserted. I'm walking, I'm making this like three mile walk to the one car you can kind of see in the distance, which I know is mine. And as I get close to it, I realize, oh my God, what's all that broken glass around my car? And I get to my car and my windshield has been completely smashed. And, and I don't mean just like there's a little hole. I mean, the windshield is gone and there's glass all over the ground. There's glass in the front seat. There's glass everywhere. Somebody, somebody had just smashed my entire windshield. I had no windshield. It was gone. Uh, and this was December. Do you, uh, do you believe this was because uh, the you had Pennsylvania yes. license plates? Yes, because I called a security guy was driving around in a Jeep, and he saw me standing there, and he pulled over, and I said, look at this. You want to take a report? And he said, report? Uh, oh, geez, yeah, you got no windshield. Well, thanks a lot. And, he's, and, he, goes around, and he goes around to the back of the car, and he says, well, geez, look at you got Pennsylvania tags. You go out to Giants. What do you expect? Oh. So that's what I get from the security guard. It was oh, it's I'm so, it's my fault. Okay, thank you very much. So, but now I have to get from exit 16W on the Jersey Turnpike back home in December with no windshield. <laughs> uh, and as I started driving down the turnpike, it started to sleet. <laughs> And and so uh, and I mean this was early in the drive. I, I wasn't more than I wasn't more than ten minutes into my drive, and it started to sleet. And of course, the sleet is coming full bore right through right into the car. And out of reflex, I turned on the windshield wipers. <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell you all from personal experience that windshield wipers work far better when you have a windshield. 
<laughs> so I'm driving back on the Jersey Turnpike in the sleet with no windshield, with windshield wipers swinging back and forth in front of me. Catching every 20th uh, yeah. snowflake. Yes. And so when I, got, when I got off the turnpike, when I got off the turnpike exit, I pulled into the booth where the card was, and the guy looked in, and I looked like Frosty the Snowman. <laughs> I was completely covered with snow. It's like planes, trains, and automobiles. It's worse. It's a hundred times worse. So when you when you ask what was my worst travel experience in fifty three years in the business, it it's that one. Uh, and there ain't, ain't, second place ain't even close. Nobody can top that no. one. The guy at the toll booth did he say anything to you? Yeah, he, at you? he said, "Hey, you don't have a windshield." <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, oh, that's Ray. That's a great story. Well, thank you. I love these stories, man. All right, uh, I got, I got four more days of them. Two one five five nine two ninety four ninety four. As I said, we'll we'll take some calls. We can't take a ton, but I, I do. You know, want to give people the opportunity to to wish Ray the best. We will work in the sports issues of the day. He's Ray Dinger. I'm Glenn Mack. Now on ninety four WIP. favorite stuff yes it is i love that you know i remember when you and i went to the rock and roll hall of fame um because we don't we never really discuss music a whole lot i mean you kind of know what i like and i kind of know what you like well i <laughs> anybody listen to this show for more than an hour knows about your affinity for the beatles yeah yeah yeah. but when we went to the rock and roll hall of fame it, it went levels beyond that right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, you know, you find out that I really like the kinks and I found out that you really like Linda Ronstadt in ways that go well beyond music. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was just, that was, that was for me, listen, going to the pro football hall of fame. We talked about that last week. That was a very special thing for me. I'd never been to the pro football hall of fame. I conceived this whole thing. Like if I'm going, I want to go with Ray. How can I do it? We'll do this trip. And it worked, but the rock and roll hall of fame was just more special for me just because I learned so much about you that I didn't know. Which leads to the next question we have here, Ray. Uh-huh. From somebody uh, named Philly Funk. Okay. Who says, ask Ray, Beatles versus Stones. Uh, I was I was definitely a Rolling Stones guy. Who's the greatest artist from Motown? In my view, Smokey Robinson. And uh, who is the biggest jackass Ray ever covered? Reggie Jackson. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, let me get a call, and then we'll get your answer to that previous question. Steve in Wildwood is is with us. Hi, Steve. Well, Glenn, Ray, great pleasure to be on the show. I, sure. I didn't think I'd get on so quick, but, Ray, let me tell you, it's an honor and a pleasure, sir, to be on with you. Uh, you're, without a doubt, one of the greatest Philadelphians ever, and, and I'm just so glad I got on as fast as I did. And uh, I just want to tell the callers and, and all the listeners, why you're so great to me. You once told a story about your grandmother and her feud with Pee Wee Reese. And oh, no, 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 no. Phil Rizzuto. Oh, Phil Rizzuto. Oh, yes. even better. A Yankee, right? <laughs> I thought, sorry, I thought it was uh, Pee Wee Reese. But yeah, that story, Ray, is so great because to me as a baseball man, I coached down in Florida and managed for many years. It, it's so great because at the end, it's the fact that your grandmother knew what Phil Rizzuto was doing to our 
war veteran, left-handed right, well, don't, with, don't. You know what, Steve? Because I yeah. don't remember the story. Most listeners All don't. Right, I'm going to have them tell it, it right? right after the after the call. Okay, great, great. Yeah, Ray, if you could tell that story, I won't. I won't. All then right. That's all I'll say. Okay. If you right, could thank you, that. Steve. I appreciate that. I don't remember that story. Um, it was. I've talked. I've talked so much about my grandfather who owned the bar, and uh, the, his bar was really where I grew up and where I learned about sports. And from listening to my grandfather, I learned about storytelling. But I never talked a whole lot about my grandmother, but uh, I loved her dearly, and she was a wonderful woman <laughs> putting up with my grandfather all those years she had to be. Uh, but she was a huge sports fan, too, uh, and loved baseball and really uh, was an athletics fan when the A's were in Philly. She, she liked both teams, but she really liked the A's better. And the A's had a left-handed pitcher named Lou Brissy, who was, uh, who was, was in World War II, uh, and was severely wounded in Italy, uh, and it was uh, an artillery shell went off near him, damaged his leg, and at the field hospital they wanted to amputate his leg. Uh, and he said, no, 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 please don't take my leg because I'm a professional ball player and you're, you're going to be taking away my livelihood if you do that. So they saved his leg, but he had to undergo, and I still remember there were 23 surgeries wow. over the years. Wow. And they finally, there was no bone left in his leg, so they just put a metal rod in. To, in his leg, but he was still he could throw a baseball well enough that after he rehabbed, he came back and he made the major leagues and he made the Philadelphia Athletics and he made an, an All Star team and was voted Courageous Athlete of the Year for, for for that. So he was the best pitcher the A's had, and um, but he had this metal rod in his leg which he could not bend his knee. And one night at Connie Mack Stadium, he was mowing down the New York Yankees, the mighty Yankees of the fifties, uh, and. Phil Rizzuto came up to bat, and I think I think Brissy may have had like a no hitter going in the fifth, sixth inning, something like that. And my grandmother, who loved Lou Brissy, was sitting there, and Phil Rizzuto came up and laid down a bunt, hmm. knowing that Brissy couldn't get off the mound and throw yeah, him out. So right. Rizzuto lays down a bunt, beats it out, gets the hit, breaks up the no hitter, uh, and my grandmother is furious and just and and never forgave him. And one of the things that my grandmother and grandfather did all the time was every year they used to drive. They would literally drive from Philadelphia to Florida to go to the round and spring training. They would go to all Gosh, the different. It's like uh, the next generation that you were in going to Hershey. Yeah, we were going in the other direction. We were going to Hershey glamorous. to watch the Eagles. My grandparents were headed south. They were going down to, 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 to do the baseball camp. So they went to the Yankees camp, and my grandmother went right down to the railing by the Yankees dugout and stood there waiting for Phil Rizzuto to come out. And Rizzuto pops his head out of the dugout, and my grandmother says, Oh, Mr. Rizzuto, Mr. Rizzuto, could you come over here, please? And, of course, Phil thinks, oh, here's a woman who wants my autograph, right? So he comes out with a big smile on his face and comes walking over to her. And she says, I was in the stands at Connie Mack Stadium when you laid down that bun on Lou Brissy. That was a lousy thing to do. <laughs> and then she turned on her heel and she walked away. Oh. Gosh, that's so great. And she left Rizzuto standing there like, huh? What, 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 what just happened here? Oh, that's so great. And my grandfather loved telling that story and, um, and said that he said it was, like, it was like Peg. That was her name. It was like Peg hit him in the face with a whipped cream pie. It was just, it was just one of those sorts of moments. I never heard that story. Yeah. That's a great story. Yep. Your family is just so terrific. I, wish you, I, I really wish that you had gotten a chance to meet my grandfather. Oh, I would have loved to. He, he, was, hey. uh, he was a real character. I am privileged that you get to know my dad. Yeah, oh yeah. And, I, I love talking to Marvin. And he loves talking to you, and he loves calling in the show, and he loves that he met you, and it's, you know, 
you you are essentially halfway between my age and my dad's age. And right. My dad, my dad's crying that you're leaving the show. What's <laughs> if you can just come to the quadrangle once a month or so and just I'll come to the quadrangle. We'll all get together at the quadrangle for lunch. All right. Um, the question that was asked that you wanted to think about was, I yes. uh, forget the guy's name who asked, but uh, Ray's having a dinner party, which I can see because your wife would certainly handle the catering of this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have, one, it says one member. I, I don't think he means currently because I can't imagine there's a current member of the Flyers you would invite. Right. So let's go all time. Uh, one member of each franchise and a media member. Who's coming to Ray's dinner party and why? Okay. Do you want to tick off the teams, and I'll tell you who it is? Sure, Phillies. Tug McGraw. Oh, that's a good start. Mm-hmm. That's entertainment. Yep. Eagles. Dick Vermeil. Well, the good news is you'll be talking to him. And I'll be talking now. to him in just a few minutes. <laughs> but, yeah, he would be it. I, and, I, and we've had dinner with Dick Vermeil. We have. Yeah. He's, uh, a, he's a great coach, and he's and, a great dinner companion. And he's bringing the wine. And he brings the wine. Ray, this is a great list so far. <laughs> I thought you'd like it. All right, Flyers. Bernie Perrant. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And we've had dinner with Bernie Perron. Yeah. He's thoroughly engaging. Mm-hmm. Can he bring his wife? She's charming. Um, all for it. Okay. Um, what do we do? Sixers. Sixers. Julia Serving. Oh, this is the greatest dinner party ever. Mm-hmm. Okay. And media member. Stan Hockman. Uh, okay. That's great. <laughs> can I can I crash it? You can you you're absolutely <laughs> invited. <laughs> I would, I would love, I would love to have, I would love Gosh, to get all those guys that together. Would that would be a great one. That would be so great. Okay. Yeah, I got, I, 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 I miss Stan so much. Stan was, Stan was, uh, you know, he was my mentor. Yeah. He was my hero. Yeah. Uh, Ray, uh, several people asked, what's, what's Ray's favorite restaurant in Philadelphia? Um, I would say Osteria. Okay. I would say that's Osteria on Broad Street. Actually, that's where he had dinner with Dick Vermeil. Yeah. I, I had dinner with you and Dick Vermeil there. Uh, and it, one, somebody wants to know, uh, ask Ray, ice cream versus water ice, and where's his favorite place? Oh, um, ice cream for sure. Uh, I mean, I like water ice, but no, I like ice cream far better. And um, Bassett's at the Reading Terminal Market. Okay. Nice. That's good. Really good. Uh, Rick and Cherry Hill is with us. Hey, Rick. Hey, how are you? Good. Gentlemen. Hey, Rick. Uh, listen, this is my first time ever getting a chance to speak with Ray, and I wanted to get it in before he finally left the uh, scene. So thank you for your years of service, Ray. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. Um, I have a personal question to ask you, Ray, and then a, a, a Jalen Hurts uh, point. Okay. My question to you, of all the iconic voices that you've encountered during your sports covering uh, other than John Facenda, who would the most iconic voice be? That's a great question. The most iconic voice? Voice, yeah. If you want yes. somebody to narrate the Ray Didinger story, let's put it that way. Um, I would. Uh, <laughs> well, there, I mean, there are two. There, there are two different categories. There are the there are the broadcast voices, and then there are the actor voices. Uh, well, the, the, broadca- the broadcast voice, I would go with. Uh, okay, I I think that um, to me. One of the great one of the greats is Vince Scully. Oh, that'd be good. Vince Scully. Vince yeah. Scully. I mean, he he didn't sound like anybody else. If you if you turned on the radio, you knew that was Vince Scully. Exactly. Exactly. What's your Jalen Hurts question? Uh, now, uh, on paper, you know the Eagles. Uh, I, I admire what how we did this year, uh, this off season. 
uh, everything's laid out for, for Jalen Hurts. My question to you is what increase or what improvement would make it justifiable to keep him? Okay. Well, um, accuracy. Uh, I mean, that's number one uh, above all. Uh, and I think that if he's if he is doing this off if, 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 if thanks Rick if he if he is doing this off season camp I mean guys can make tremendous progress in the off season if they're willing to work at it I mean there are a lot of these teachers there are a lot of these sports academy type guys Tom House is one um, Carson Palmer's brother Jordan is another one that are they're they're basically quarterback fixers is kind of what they are I mean they just get, get your mechanics they break it down they build you back up. Uh, and they prove and prove everything about your game. I mean, you know, I mean, what Palmer has done with uh, Joe Burrow is amazing. I mean, he's the guy that really transformed Josh Allen from being this wild, high and wide thrower into a real precision passer. It can be done. It can be done if a guy's willing to spend the time and put in the work. He can make himself into a better passer. And if that's what if that's what Jalen Hurts is doing this summer or this off season, and that's what he should be doing, and apparently he is then he has a chance to improve dramatically, especially with the addition of another really good receiver like A.J. Brown. Hey, Ray, we uh, we actually have uh, something going on in the next segment. Uh, so I want to sneak this in right now. It is time for This Week in Philadelphia Sports History, brought to you by Shive Vintage Sports, where there's a story in every stitch. Check out their throwback apparel at their center city location or at shivesports.com. Well, Ray, here's one that you remember. Uh, on May 19th, 1974, the Philadelphia Flyers won the Stanley Cup, <laughs> which means that on May 21st, oh gosh, it's like, what is it, 48 years ago today, that's how long it was, there was this. The Stanley Cup coronation spread throughout Philadelphia, and in what was the greatest championship celebration in the history of sport. Two million people jammed the streets of the city to cheer the victors in a glorious parade of heroes. You should get that guy to narrate your life. Yeah, that was pretty good. What do you remember? Um, I, re- I remember two things. I remember going back to the Philadelphia Bulletin office that day after covering the Flyers-Bruins game. I was like the fourth or fifth sidebar guy that was down there. So I did the visiting locker room. So I got to deal with a grumpy Phil Esposito and Bobby (laughs) Orr. But I went back to the office to write my Bruins losing locker room story. Uh, And the sports editor came over and he said to me, hey, we hear that there's going to be this parade in town, that they're going to have a parade for the Flyers. Uh, Could you call somebody in city government and uh, somebody at City Hall or something and get, um, get some information about this? Is it really going to happen? Where is it going to be? Well, it's a Sunday afternoon. Good luck trying to find somebody at City Hall to answer the phone on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, but uh, I did manage to track down at home a guy named the city representative, a guy named Harry Bellinger. And he said, yeah, we're going to have a parade. Um, and, I, you know, we don't think it's going to be a big deal. Uh, we're, we're figuring we're going to have police presence there for about 100,000 people. <laughs> Really? That's they what he said. No sense. No sense. He said, you know, we're making preparations. We're saying a hundred thousand, but we don't even really think it's going to be that. But you know, it's going to start down at the spectrum, and then it's going to come up, and we're going to finish up and have a reception uh, right there at Independence Hall. And uh, and I remember saying to him, "Geez, I think it's going to be bigger than that. A hundred thousand? No, no, no. Not that many people in town even really know what hockey is. I, mean, oh, I don't know." Well, then, of course, the parade happens and two million people show up. So 
obviously the city way, way underestimated what that day was going to be like. But I remember being in the parade and being in the middle of it because we were riding. There was a press bus that was in the middle of the parade, and we were riding with the players. Uh, the players were in individual convertibles going through the train, but we were in a bus. And on the bus, in addition to the press, were the families of the players. So we were in the bus with uh, sorry, the dads, and all stuff. the mothers, all the fathers, all the brothers, all the sisters, you know, who had all come down from Canada <laughs> to watch this. Uh, and from these little small towns in Canada, and all of a sudden they're riding through the streets of Philadelphia, and there are two million people. Hanging from the wind, hanging from the stop signs, hanging from the wind, hanging out the windows, throwing confetti. Uh, I mean, it was an amazing sight, and it was amazing for me. And I grew up here. You can imagine what it was like for these people from Moose Jaw and Smithers and all these little towns. And I remember riding in the seat next to me was Joe Watson Senior. Yeah, was the father, from the father of Joe and Jimmy. What town, British Columbia? Smithers. Smithers. He was from. He was. He was. The, he was the town butcher in Smithers of a town of about 400 people. And he was in the, he was in the seat next to me looking out the window at, at this 2 million people uh, all over the streets, packing the sidewalks. And I remember Mr. Watson saying to no one in particular, just thinking out loud, my God, I didn't know there were this many people in the world. That's great. Was what he said. That's great. Story. So I yeah, I, I will always remember the Flyers parade. 215-592-9494. Great stories. What what an amazing career you have had both because of your talent and your personality and all of the things that you have had the opportunity to witness and we're going to keep talking about those for as long as I get the chance. He's Ray Dinger. I'm Glenn Mack now Saturday morning 94 WIP. Ray, feel free to sing along. No, no, I'm not, I'm not stepping on Linda Ronstadt. I'm not stepping on Linda Ronstadt. That's actually a mashup of two of my favorites. That's Linda Ronstadt singing a Smokey Robinson song. Sure. And that's, uh, yeah, that, oh, I, I remember, I, I remember being at the Spectrum and hearing her sing that live and boy, brought the house down. I mean, she, she could, she could really sing and Smokey Robinson Smokey Robinson's songwriting and his singing is spectacular. It uh, really was. I, I remember going to the Uptown Theater, <clears throat> which was just a couple blocks up Broad Street from Temple University, uh, to see, back when the Uptown was open, it's not now, but back at that time, going up to see Smokey Robinson and the Miracles uh, at the Uptown Theater. And the place was packed. And, uh, and boy, he, uh, he could sing. And that, uh, and that crowd was just, they were eaten out of his hand. When, he's, when he sang... Ooh, baby, baby, and he yeah. hit that last high note. Yeah. Just the women shrieking. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was really that's one. I've been to a lot of concerts, um, but that Smokey Robinson at the Uptown is is in my top five for sure. And Linda Ronstadt is the one for whom you've always carried a torch. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she she was. Um, <clears throat> I remember seeing her the first time I saw her was at the Main Point, which was a, a little, oh, gosh, fo- a, yeah. a, a little, a little folky club, little folky coffee shop out on Lancaster yeah, Avenue. they reopened that a couple of years ago. Yeah, they kind of reopened it, but but it had a really long run in the in the seventies, and it was it was really kind of a a folk rock kind of place, and uh, um, not very big. And that was the beauty of it. It was it wasn't big, and people would line up, and everybody would just try and squeeze in. 
but I mean, you pretty much felt like wherever you were sitting in the main point, you could almost reach out and touch the artist. I mean, it was that intimate. And, uh, and I remember that was the first, that was the first place I saw her. I think she might've been there with the stone ponies. She hadn't yet gone oh, to a solo yet. Wow. And, uh, and then, you know, the other places when she became a big, big star. Yeah. I, 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 listen, I still, I still play her uh, CD in my car when I'm driving. Still works. So, uh, you don't sing. And um, somebody sent me a note, you know, among the 480 responses I got when I said, you know, what would you ask Ray Dinger said, um, Ray has written a brilliant thing in Tom Amia's stage show. Um, but has Ray ever acted or had the bug to act in his life? Uh, and why has he never cast Glenn in his performances? Ah. <laughs> the, the, the second one's easy. I, I'm not good enough. You have real professionals doing it, nor would I particularly fit any of those roles in that play. But did you ever act? Did you ever get on the stage? You're a very public guy who's not afraid to be on TV, on radio, voice your opinion. I mean, you are out there. You know what? You can answer that in a minute. We have we have special guests walking in right now, Ray. <laughs> These people asked me if they could come and see you before you left. Come on over to the mic. Come on over to the mic. Uh, because they wanted to pay tribute to you, and they're not going to be around next week when we have a special party for Ray. Let uh, Dan make sure that mic's turned on, if you would. Um, the Eagles pep band, Bobby Mansour and the boys, made the special trip up today. Oh my goodness! Uh, they had the Eagles, um, the, uh, the autism the challenge. Autism, yep. autism challenge. Okay. Oh, that's right. right that was today. today. Oh, was today. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. They were down there, but uh, Bobby, it's so great to see you guys. Great to see you. Great to see you. Great to see you. Good to get emotional, but uh, all right, let's uh, do this before uh, my meds wear off. So uh, anyway, um, just want to say um, it's been great working along with you. You're a legend. You're the best. There's nobody better. Thank you, Bob. So um, can we move in with you? <laughs> Is that possible? Just for like a month. Just don't ask me to sing, okay? okay. Just don't <laughs> ask me to sing. We'll all regret it. We might actually be calling you, though, because you know we need that education because that's the other thing we thank you for, the seasonal education that you give us. <laughs> you really do. So thank you for that as well. Thank you, guys. But, uh, yeah, just just going back, uh, Comcast, Sportnet. Mm -hmm. um, we used to leave the vet to get there after the game, and we're in the studio. It's dark. We play after the game. We're ready, we're ready, and everyone says, stop, stop, 2001. So all of a sudden, Jake Plummer, Jake Plummer goes to the length I of the field. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Back on the 35-yard line, fourth down, throws, gets to the 50, throws it, and uh, who caught the pass? It, it was uh, former Villanova great. Was it uh, Marte Jenkins? Oh, Marte Jenkins. Oh, okay. excuse me. Was it? I thought it was Brian Finneran. No, no, no. no. Brian Finneran dropped the pass. Dropped the oh, pass. Oh, okay. And, then, and <laughs> then he got cut. Yeah, yeah. Andy cut him. That yeah. was before he went to the Falcons. So right. Um, wrong guy. Yeah. Just, just a running joke with uh, me and you. Uh, we would wait to the stadium because we did this for three years afterwards, and we'd wait outside of Comcast Sportsnet, and then we'd walk in. I'd walk in. And I'd talk to you, and I'd go into the studio. I'm like. Marte Jenkins, is it safe to come in? You're like, yeah, come on in. Mm -hmm. So that was a running joke for a I bunch think, of years. I actually think he said, "It's you're safe, guys. It's yeah. in the bag. Yeah, I could have been. <laughs> I that could have been. I, I, that could have been. I think I remember. Yeah, yeah. But that was the only time. Absolutely, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, I got, actually, I got Ray to go to a bar. No. In Roxborough. Yeah, Henry James. Yeah, I got him to go to bar. Oh, and I we, know that, but it's a good yeah, bar. Yeah, great bar. Yeah, and um, we talked about the good book. chicken wings. And um, we talked about the, the fight song. We talked about um, the pep band. and uh, it, was when I, it was when I was doing the third edition of Eagles Encyclopedia, mm -hmm. and I was updating some certain things. Mm -hmm. 
And I realized through the previous two editions of Eagles Encyclopedia, I had never written the history of the fight song. Where, how could you do the Eagles Encyclopedia without telling the story of the fight song? So I talked to Bobby, and I said, look, why don't we get together? We could talk about the fight song and then how the whole pep band thing came together. So we agreed to meet at the Henry James. And yeah, that's how that, that was, happened. Uh, that was really awesome. That was really awesome. But uh, just this is a tribute to you, and uh, you know what? Um, let's do the fight song together. Cool. And it, Yeah. And I, I don't want to say one last time because that doesn't that doesn't sound right. You're going to go to games, right? You're going to go to games. I I don't know that I'll be at every one, but I'll yeah. you know okay. I'll, I'll we'll come down there for sure. We'll yes, we'll be there. Yeah, Let's go to Rittenhouse no. and start screaming up. Yeah, he'll hear you. <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, uh, Skull uh, 2.0. Yeah, right Skull's uh, yeah. Yeah. in Potter County uh, hunting right now. So, uh-huh. uh Good for yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, he is. So uh, we're going to play this and uh, try to sing along. You got this. You got, got this. Okay. My eagles fly on the road to victory. Fight eagles fight, score a touchdown one, two, three. Hit them low, hit them high, and watch our eagles fly. Fly eagles fly on the road to victory. E-A-G-L-E-S, Eagles! <laughs> yeah! Wow. Oh, Ray! A, a, a personal serenade, Ray. It doesn't get better than that. I can't think of a better way to go out. I can't um, think of a better way you, to go you out. You guys are the greatest. I oh, mean, you know how, how important I think it is when we have you at the pregames. Yes. It's, it, it adds so much to our show uh, and, the, and how the crowd anticipates it and loves it, and you, you bring it up a level, and this tribute to Ray is just uh, it's, it's great. That's awesome. Thank you, guys. We love you. Thank you so much. Thank right. you very much. Be well. Yeah. Hey, Woo. I'll see you in August. I'll be there. All right, no birds. Guys. Thank you so much. There you go. Bobby Mansour and the Pep Band. Nice stuff. 215-592-9494. That was a special moment. He is Ray Didinger. I'm Glenn Mack now. Saturday morning, 94 WIP. All right, Ray, as we come back with Smokey Robinson again, I want to read something to you, all right? Okay. Actually, let me let me bring on our guest, and then I want to read it to him and to you. Dick Vermeil joins us, the former head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, Super Bowl winning coach, Hall of Famer. Yes, indeed. One of our favorite people. Coach, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, uh, I appreciate the invite. I, I want to start by reading something to you and to Ray, and here's what I'm going to read. This, this was written in 1976. Dick Vermeil loves challenges, but let's face it. They aren't so easy to find anymore. Lindbergh has already crossed the Atlantic. Hillary has reached the top of the snowy crest of Mount Everest. Neil Armstrong has gathered rocks on the dark side of the moon. What's left? Well, you can capture the Loch Ness Monster barehanded, or if you have a real death wish, you can quit a secure job at UCLA to become head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. Vermeil, 39, chose the latter this weekend, signing a generous five-year Eagles contract, ending a wild seven-week search by owner Leonard Toes and GM Jim Murray. Vermeil obviously has a strong sense of adventure. Ray, can you tell me who wrote those words? I wrote that. I remember, <laughs> I, I remember, it, I remember it like I wrote it yesterday. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that was your welcome to town by columnist Ray Dinger, Dick Vermeil. Yeah, well, <laughs> Worked out I okay. I think he's sort of right on. <laughs> <laughs> well, taking over that Eagles team that you took over in 1976 was like climbing Mount Everest. 
you know, there was actually a little more talent there than uh, the record proved, you know, prior to that time. You know, we had two, we had a left tackle and a right tackle. We had an offensive center, you know, and we had a Pro Bowl tight end in Charlie Young. You know, had Randy Logan, who uh, Pro Bowl strong safety. We had those kind of people there. But it was my job to put them all together and surround them with other people that could help them be as good as they had the ability to be, you know. Uh, Coach Vermeil, Ray has often said to me that uh, while you guys, you know, ended up with a very uh, warm relationship and respect each other tremendously and, and like each other, that it didn't really start out that way. That uh, your initial sense of Ray was, Ray, is it fair to say not so favorable? Yeah, we had our differences. Let's put it that way. Okay. <laughs> do, do, you, do you remember that, Coach? Do, Ray, do, you, do I need to have Ray tee that up yeah i do i do i only remember one occasion because you know i stayed away from reading the papers as was recommended to me by john wooden and but a article was presented to me uh one morning at training camp at widener with me chopping the head off a guy uh that uh had been a pretty good special teams player over the years as an eagle and i had cut him you know in the first opportunity and uh, he really got after my butt, and I was sort of sensitive to that. So I, 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 I asked to meet with him. I met him in the dining room and said, "Hey, let's talk." And I went in the back room and I said, "Ray, you know, I, I saw this, but what I want to do is tell you why I did it. That it wasn't based on his ability to play football. It was based on what he was doing negatively in the locker room. And I just, I had to stop it now uh, because it it can perpetuate a, a locker room. I mean, and and infect it. You know. It, and uh, and he understood, and he never told anybody the story. Which uh, right then uh, it proved to me I could trust him. I never saw it repeated in paper again. And uh, no, and from that time on, I think our relationship uh, really uh, grew over the years. You know, to uh, what you call the ultimate. You know. Yeah, we're really good friends now. Uh, but I under I understood I I understood a lot because I was the beat guy for the Philadelphia Bulletin then. Dick was the first year head coach. Uh, he was trying to rebuild this team. He was trying to build up their self-esteem. He was trying to convince these guys that they could compete, that they could win, because they hadn't won in a decade. I understood, and every day Dick was trying his best to motivate these guys and convince them that they could be a good team and that they could beat the Cowboys and they were on the right track. And that's what coaches, that's what good coaches do, and Dick was doing that every day. I understood that. I totally got it. But I was there as a reporter, and my job was to kind of write what I saw in the field. And what I saw in the field was not a very good team. So, yeah. so Dick, Dick kind of thought we were working across purposes. Uh, yeah. But we weren't. I mean, Dick was just doing what coaches do, and I was just doing what reporters right. do. Your, your job is not to, to be cheerleader for right. the team, and his job is yeah. he, he wants to build the morale of the Correct. team. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, so, no question. Ray, at, at what point did you get the sense – I mean, you knew his resume from UCLA. You'd seen him win bowl games, et cetera. But at what point did you get the sense that this guy this is going to work out here? Oh, no, I, I knew. Listen, I covered the Rose Bowl when he beat Woody Hayes. I was The Bulletin had sent me the bulletin had sent me out to cover that Rose Bowl with the idea in mind that the, the Ohio State team, they, they said this is one of the great college football teams of all time. And so they sent me out there with the idea of, of canonizing Woody Hayes and the Ohio State Buckeyes. Uh, and so I went out there to cover the game with that in mind. And then, of course, <laughs> then of course, the game plays out, uh, and U- UCLA just took Ohio State apart. And it, was, it wasn't because they had the better players. I mean, it was just a tremendous coaching job. It was one of the great coaching jobs I've ever seen. 
And I walked away from that, not ever knowing, without ever thinking that Dick Vermeil was going to come to Philadelphia. But I remember, I remember thinking, this guy can really flat-out coach. And then a month later, he's the coach of the Eagles. So, I mean, I knew that Dick had the ability to coach. I mean, I saw it firsthand. My only question was, would Leonard Toes have the patience to stay with him long enough to let him build the team here? Because Leonard went through coaches like most people went through socks. And I just didn't know if, if he had if he would have the patience to because I knew what, what Dick was facing, especially with no draft picks. It wasn't going to happen overnight. It was going to take a little time. And would Leonard have the patience to let Dick do his job? And he did and wound up taking the Eagles to Super Bowl fifteen. Dick, was you were you ever concerned about uh, your security in terms of what Ray's explaining? No, I really wasn't. I really wasn't. I, I never really had any time in any one job. I had people tell me, for example, St. Louis Rams, you know, after my second year, hey, you may not make it into your third year or, or halfway into the third year. If you're not gone, you're going to be gone. But I think coaches sort of know that. And since that time, I've, I've spent a lot of time evaluating head coaches in the National Football League and the career extension. You know, and 29.8% of all NFL coaches were fired after the first year. <laughs> that, that was it. Uh, not including this year. That's 511 coaches, and, and including interim head coaches in that number. So, you know, I sort of now I even recognize it better. But when I was young, the only thing I thought about was helping guys get better. You know, and I I was more on, in a philosophy of building a team rather than buying a team or drafting a team, uh, go with the people you have and every day go on the field and make each one of them a little bit better. Sometimes you lose a few guys that, and on the way that have the talent. They just don't want to make that deep commitment to the hard work every day and those kinds of things. But uh, I, I really never worried about getting fired. Um, Coach Vermeil, Dick Vermeil is our guest uh, now, a longtime friend of Ray. Um, I know you said you didn't you didn't read the newspapers, which is probably smart. You were here before there was sports talk radio, which was really smart of you. Uh, but did you read Ray stuff? Did you did you get a sense of what Ray was writing either then or later? Later, yeah, definitely later. You know, when I became a fan, you know, in '82, I'm out of coaching. I'm out of coaching for 14 years. Yeah. I still lived in Philadelphia, so I became a fan of Rays, you know, and I, I respect people that have strong opinions that, that put a lot of research into building the opinions rather than pulling it out of the air or getting it from somebody else. And, and then the next time you hear them talk or write, they're saying just the opposite, as, and that's what they really believe. But Ray was consistent, and you knew uh, what he was writing. You may not totally agree with him, but you knew it was researched. And there was so it added credibility to everything he said. You know, when you look at all the, the rewards, awards he's won, it it really uh, clarifies what I'm saying. You know, you just it's believable. You know, and yeah, you don't I'm, have to agree with him all the time. You know? Yeah, I'm talking with two Hall of Famers right now. Which yeah, is, which is pretty special for me. Ray, uh, the Dallas Cowboys already worked their way into this conversation. And I know uh, that when Dick Vermeil was coaching the Eagles back then, the emphasis was we're going to beat the Cowboys, we're going to beat the Cowboys. Mm -hmm. when, when did you see that turn, Ray? When did that moment occur? That they got to that point? That they could? Um, oh, I, I remember it very clearly. It was a Monday night game down in Dallas. The Eagles had never won 
I repeat, they had never won in Texas Stadium. Uh, and I know I can vouch for because I was there for all of them. They had never won in Texas Stadium, and they went to Texas Stadium uh, in 19, uh, 1979. And they, um, on a Monday night, they beat the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, and um, Tony Franklin kicked the longest field goal in Eagles history to that point, 59 yards. Uh, Ron Jaworski got hit, got knocked out of the game. John Walton came in through a touchdown pass. Uh, Dick went for it on fourth down, which he rarely did, and they threw a touchdown pass to Harold Carmichael. And then at the end of the game, Wilbert Montgomery broke off a beautiful run off the left side and put the game on ice. And the Eagles had actually beaten the Dallas Cowboys in Texas Stadium on Monday night football. And I remember watching the team come off the field that night, the look on their faces, the sense that we're there, we're there. You know, the coach has been talking all this time about we got to beat the Cowboys. we got to learn how to beat the Cowboys. we got to get past the Cowboys to get to where we want to go. And that night, in front of the whole country, they did it. And that was the night, you know, everybody says the Eagles arrived in 80 when they beat them in the championship game. And I suppose they did, because that's what sent them to the Super Bowl. But I really think that win over the Cowboys in Texas Stadium on Monday Night Football the year before was, was really kind of the turning point. Dick, you, do you feel the same way? Was that the moment? Yeah, I do. Uh, earlier in the year, we beat the unbeaten world champions in Philadelphia, the Pittsburgh Steelers. To me, that was my first sign we're getting very close to being what we want to be. And then later it carried over into that game uh, that Ray's talking about. But, uh, yeah, those two games define for me. In fact, I, I, I list those as a couple of my proudest moments as a football coach, those two games. Yeah. Um. Dick, you uh, you are getting into the Hall of Fame uh, coming up. It was it was a long journey to get there. Uh, I'm and we have talked. I remember we had you on the show the weekend after you got in, but it certainly bears repeating. Uh, that's coming up. Is that in July, Ray? August. August. Excuse me. That's coming up in July in Canton. Are you uh, are you starting to think about it? What does it mean to you right now? Well, yeah, you can't help but I wake up in the middle of the night and think about it. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I, I have complained to the people that run the hall that they give me the same amount of time to talk about my career in the NFL as in having coached three teams that they give to a, a person that only played on one team. And I said, I don't need three much times as much time, but, but I'd like a little more time. I said, I could just talk about the ownership of three teams in, in eight minutes. Yeah, but that's the way it is, and that's the way it's going to yeah, be. So you, you've really got to think about it. They suggested I get a, a you know, a, a speech writer. If I was going to get a speech writer, I'd ask Ray to write it for me. But <laughs> I'm available. He's right. He's I'm got retiring. Else to yeah. Do. <laughs> yeah. See, but I, I think it has to come from me and how I feel at that time, and it doesn't have to be all written down. It just has to make concise and sincere. And meaningful. And for me to do that in eight minutes, having coached in three cities for three ownership teams, three management staffs, three personnel departments, three coaching staffs, and three football teams is tough to do. And I wake up in the middle of the night all the time worried about it. Mm -hmm. I just, I guess I'm a worrier, but uh, it's going to be a real challenge, especially me being an emotional guy, you know? So I, uh, uh, in a way, I'm not looking forward to it, and the other way, I'm looking forward to the challenge. You know, how many, um, how many guests, how many friends, how many former players? Do you have any idea of how many of your guys are going to be out there with you? 
oh, I don't know how many are coming, but I've sent out over over 450 invitations that went out on the email. In fact, I'm sitting right here. Uh, they gave me yesterday a list of about 18 people that the emails bounce back because the NFL sent out at May 10th or 11th the first initial blast of the invitation and the mechanics. And then my actual formal invitation uh, mailed out goes out here, uh, later on. And you don't know for sure until July 1st. Everybody that's coming has to make the commitment by that time. Right. But sent out a little over 450. <laughs> well, Coach Vermeil, as uh, as as you know, uh, because that's why I asked you to call today. Ray Dinger is retiring uh, after next week, after a 53 year career in Philadelphia media as a writer, as a radio guy, uh, with me as a uh, broadcaster, television host. Just kind of want to ask you to put it in perspective from what you've seen all these years. Well, I'd say first off, the easiest way to condense. Ray Dittinger's career as a writer, a television analyst, uh, you know, and a person is, he has no equal. Who matches Ray Dittinger? You name one. I can't, I've been in three cities. I can't, I can't match a Ray Dittinger anywhere. So I just say he has no equal. Wow. (laughs) I can't think of, I can't think of higher praise than that. And I can't think of coming from a better person than you. I mean, you're, you're the best coach I ever covered. I mean, it, well, and, and, and it ain't even close. So uh, for, for all of those years and for all the kindness and for all of your friendship, just thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you. I'm tearing up right now. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> well, when I, the next time I see you, we'll both be in Canton, and I'm really looking forward to that. I'm going to tell you something. We're going to see you before then because Marie and I are going to have a glass of wine while you watch us drink it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a date. And since I can't not do this, what kind of wine is that going to be? Well, you know, Maria likes the reds just like I do, okay? Yeah, so it'll be one of my – it'll be the best red we've ever made. I'll tell you that. Beautiful. <laughs> Coach Vermeil, I, I, I appreciate that we we're able to reach you and that uh, and uh, and have you talk to Ray at this very special time. Thank you so much. Thanks, yeah, Coach. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. Yeah, I love you, buddy. Take care. Thank you. Take, I love you too, Dick. See you in Canton. All right. He's supposed to be the one blowing up. <sighs> yeah, I know. This is <laughs> these these next couple of weeks are going to be tough. It's nice that we have an inquirer photographer here to catch every tear coming. I. I I, these next couple of weeks are going to be tough. He's a, he's he is a he is a special guy. He really really is. Uh, I'm really glad I got to. Uh, uh, I'm really glad I got to um, spend the time around him because you know I I and I told him this and he didn't quite know how to take it. But um, I said you know, just being around you, and watching you coach your players, I'm a better person for that. You taught me lessons about loyalty and dedication. And hard work, and you weren't even coaching me; you were coaching those guys. I was just watching, but just the example that you set was inspirational to me. And I can imagine if he was inspiring me, you can only imagine what he was doing to the players who were playing for him. And that's how he became a world champion, and that's how he became a Hall of Famer. So let's take a break. We'll be right back. By the way, we get back. Ray Dinger. What we're watching. Ray Dinger's five favorite movies of the last decade. Ray and Glenn, ninety-four WIP. Are you not entertained? Are you not? It's time for What We're Watching. I'm no slouch myself. (laughs) It's in the hole. The best in current movies and TV. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. 
with Glenn and Ray. Say my name, Eisenberg. You're goddamn right. All right, what we're watching is sponsored by Guided Door and Window. Buy any window or door, get a second one at 50% off, plus interest-free financing for up to 18 months. Call Guided Door and Window today, one eight seven seven go guida or visit them at goguida.com. Ray, before we get into our What We're Watching segment today, which is going to be your five favorite movies the last 10 years, mm-hmm. people who want to see you up close and personal yes. and wish you well in your retirement will have that opportunity later today. This very afternoon, <laughs> yeah, I will be doing a book signing. I don't know how many more of these I'm going to be doing, but I'm doing one this afternoon uh, at the uh, Barnes & Noble in Wilmington, right on Route good 202. Spot. It's yeah. a really good one. I've yeah. done a number of signings there over the years with various books, uh, and it's always great. The staff there is terrific, uh, and uh, we usually get a really good turnout. So uh, I will be there today. Obviously, got to finish the show first. But I will be at the Barnes & Noble Wilmington Route 202 at 3 o'clock today. And uh, so we'll be signing books starting at 3 o'clock and then for however long the line lasts or the books hold out. I will All be right. there. So please stop by and say hello. Very nice people get the chance to see Ray. All right. So for what we're watching today, last week we did your five favorite TV shows. And we had to make it of, of the 21st century because you watch so little TV that we – and, in fact, one of one of your TV shows was from the 1980s, but it's in syndication, so sure. Yeah, right. We'll throw in MASH. Why not? Right. Today, I asked you if you would do your five favorite movies of the last decade, because you're a movie guy, and you see a lot of movies, so mm-hmm. let's do it. Let's start at Ray Dinger's five favorite movies of the last decade, number five. Well, you and I did the book, The Ultimate Book of Sports Movies, and you know, over the time, we did it a while ago, it's been a number of years, and you've, we've talked about, you know, should we update it, should we freshen it up, and one of the things we said was, you know, I don't know if there's been that many great sports movies come out since we did the book, uh, but I will tell you, there was a great one that came out this year, uh, and one that definitely would probably crack the top 15 in our book. It was that good, and it's, I'm going to make it my number five mo- favorite movie of the last decade, and that is King Richard. Uh, is the story that uh, Will Smith won the Oscar for his portrayal of uh, Richard Williams, the father of Venus and Serena Williams. And uh, I, I, I wasn't all that excited about going to see it, to be honest with you, but I went and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought Will Smith was just tremendous in the role, absolutely deserved the Oscar. The two young girls who played Venus and Serena were, were, were wonderful. It was a really, really well-done film and the best sports movie I've seen in a very long time. So that's my number five. I liked it a lot. Probably not as much as you, but I certainly liked it uh, a lot. I wonder if that movie will always be remembered for the incident at the Oscars. For sure. Right? For sure. More than anything that happened in that very fine movie, what it will be remembered for is like, oh, yeah, that's the one that Will Smith went to the Oscars and punched out Chris Rock. Exactly right. That's how it's going to be remembered, which is unfortunate because the movie definitely stands on its own. Yep. All right, number four. Number four is is a a very different kind of Western, but an awfully good Western called Hell or High Water, which which I know you saw later and you liked very much, too, uh, directed by David McKenzie. Uh, It's a story of two brothers down in Texas who rob a bank. Uh, and run afoul of a persistent, grumpy old Texas Ranger who is played beautifully uh, by Jeff Bridges. Uh, and the two brothers are uh, Ben Foster and Chris Prine. And it was really, really well done. Came out in 2016. Was nominated for a few Academy Awards, didn't win any, but really, really a good, solid movie. Hell or High Water. 
I like a heist movie and I like a good western, and that movie was both of them. So very good movie. All yep. right, number three for you. Number three was um, was the latest in the Mad Max series, uh, and I honestly thought the best. And I was a big fan of I was a big fan of Road Warrior. I mean, I thought that was really a good movie. But Mad Max Fury Road was uh, I thought topped them all. It was directed by George Miller, and this one Tom Hardy takes on the role of Mad Max, which was obviously created originated by. Uh, by Mel Gibson, uh, but Tom Hardy comes in and he's really good as Mad Max. But in this movie, Mad Max is really kind of a secondary character. The real star of it is Charlize Theron, who plays the the warrior princess in this. And it's uh, your typical post-apocalyptic wasteland kind of movie. The whole Max Mad Max story. If you've seen any of them, you kind of know what the setup is. But the but the cinematography in this and the action scenes in this and the battle scenes in this and the chases are just absolutely spectacular. So that is my number three movie for the decade, Mad Max Fury Road. You know, I never saw that one. Oh, you should. I, yeah, I should. Well, how did you feel about the other Mad Maxes? Uh, I think I liked them for the time. You okay. know what I mean? When I was younger and it was exciting and so on and so on, I'm in the theaters with big sound effects and mm-hmm. so on. Uh, I can't say that you know they would make my list of my top 50 movies I've ever seen, but I liked them, but I, I will now make sure that I see this movie. Yeah, see, definitely see Fury Road. All right, number two is a movie I remember you loved, and it took me a while to see it, but when I saw it, I knew what you were talking about, a unique movie. Get Out was the uh, was the first film uh, written and directed by Jordan Peele, who was largely known for his work in television. Uh, and, man, he... <laughs> He knocked this one. He knocked this one out of the park. I I went into it with not a whole lot of expectation. I hadn't read very much about it. I had heard some people say you really need to see this. So I went out and saw it, and it just blew me away. I mean, Jordan Peele was. I mean, the writing and the directing in it is just outstanding. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya, uh, the the young actor, plays the lead. He's brilliant. Allison Williams, the daughter of Brian Williams, the newscaster, she's really good as his girlfriend. Um, it the, the film was made on a four million dollar budget. Yeah. It made two hundred and fifty five million dollars yeah, well, and made and made Jordan Peele a major force in filmmaking. Yeah. Now. I mean, he's done a number of films since then. But if you have not seen Get Out, I mean, there are a million surprises in it. Uh, a lot of twists and turns in the story, some scary, of which right? scarier than I thought. Really scary. I mean, people t- they call it a horror movie. I don't think that's what I would I don't, I don't characterize it as a horror movie. It's tremendously suspenseful. Uh, gets violent at the end, uh, but it's but it's really compelling. And there's enough little tricks and enough little things in there. Some of which they'll let you think you've got it figured out, but you really haven't got it figured out until the very end. It's really, really a brilliantly constructed film. I agree. And Ray Dinger's number one movie of the last decade. When Cassius Clay meets Sonny Liston in the ring, that's not two athletes posturing. That's combat. Two men trying to kill each other right now. If you don't beat him, he kills you. That's beyond athletics. That's beyond wide world of sports, you know. That's two warriors engaged in combat. That's what I admire. <laughs> I believe that's the Bruce Lee character. That's the, that's the actor who plays Bruce Lee and plays him very, very well. Very well. And then, of course, as that scene goes on, he... Bruce, that Bruce Lee character winds up taking on Brad Pitt, yeah. who's there as a stuntman, and that's when things really get interesting. Got to say the name of the movie. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, Quentin Tarantino. I, uh, uh, I, I am not the world's biggest Quentin Tarantino fan. Uh, some of his work I really liked a lot. Some of it I thought was 
kind of excessive and kind of dumb. Uh, but this one was absolutely brilliant. I mean, it, it is his homage to Hollywood in 1969. Uh, he's a guy that was a, a, a cinema freak, a movie freak, uh, loved that era of movie making. And this is his Valentine to that industry at that time. Uh, and it's, it's, I just think it was brilliant. I, I, I really did. I thought, I thought it was, it was so well written. It was so funny at times, so dramatic. And, and I mean, edge of your seat tense for much of it. Uh, and Leonardo DiCaprio is very, very good. Uh, Brad Pitt won the Academy Award as Best Supporting Actor. Margot Robbie plays Sharon Tate. Um, and it sort of spins the story of great, these. Of great the, cast up and down, including some su- surprises in small roles. Yeah, I mean, Bruce Dern plays uh, plays the, the guy who owns Spa Ranch, where the, where the Manson family is living. I mean, the, the, the story, like a lot of Tarantino films, it takes a lot of odd twists and turns. Um, but they, but this, unlike some of his other films, they all pay off in this one. I mean, he throws out little things early in the film, and you think, "Oh, that's kind of cool." But then it comes back, and it comes back later. Things that you saw early in the movie, all of a sudden, he brings them back, and they pay off. It's really, really well done. And again, the performances of of all the actors, DiCaprio, I don't think he's ever been better. Brad Pitt, I can tell you for sure, has never been better than as the stuntman Cliff. And Margot Robbie was was just wonderful as Sharon Tate. And it's that's my favorite movie of the decade. I loved them all, but I mean, that was an easy call. That's my number one. And by the way, did not win the Oscar that year, which went to Parasite. Yeah, I know. Which I didn't like at all. The Korean movie, I it, it's like a movie the first half, and then it changes into another kind of movie. And I thought, God, that was so overrated. Also, the Joker was that year, which I thought was terrific. I thought the Joker was really and the good. Irishman, which I know a lot of people didn't like, but. I liked it just because I liked seeing the, all those guys together one more time. Right. Uh, but it was one of those years where they decided, like, let's not give the Oscar to the obvious choice, which is a big movie that you'll remember. Right. Let's give the Oscar to some little throwaway. And, and uh, what were the other examples we had when they did that? Uh, the um, uh, the the movie. Well, the, the Shape Mexican of Water movie with the dog poop. What was that movie? Roma. Roma. Yes. God, I hated that movie. <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought, well, I mean, The Shape of Water, you hate it worse, oh, right? Oh, Shape of Water is the worst movie ever made. Right, okay. Oh, that's a horrible movie. Yeah, well, that also won. Yes, I know. I know. And 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 um, listen, this year I really liked Coda a, a lot. It's 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 a fine it's a fine film. It, right. It's a really nice feel good movie. Yes. That in ten years, you're not going to remember that you watched it. Probably won't. Right. This Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a movie that you can go back and see it every decade, and it still has some. They're so screwed up there. Anyway, you're. Uh, I'm. This is my. I'm on a soapbox. You're, no, that's okay. Your five favorite movies of the decade. Yep, that's it. Well, repeat them one more time. Okay. Uh, bottom of the top. Number five was King Richard. Um, number four was Hell or High Water. Uh, number three was Mad Max Fury Road. Number two was Get Out. And my number one. And yeah, I didn't have to think about this one. I, I'd love, just love this movie. I would watch it again this afternoon if I could. I would go to, I would you, pay you, to you go could. into a theater and watch it again if right. I could. You is could. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right, and you could watch it today at home, but you don't know that. Yeah, but I won't. No. I know. So when you retire, can I like call you every couple of weeks to talk about movies? Sure. Okay, good. We'll do that. Stephen Willow Grove wants to talk Eagles and wants to wish Ray well. Hi, Steve. Hi. Um, just a, a question. I've heard a lot of talk show people on the radio saying that um that Hertz does not have the arm to become a good NFL quarterback and I just want to know whether Ray thinks he has the arm 
Um, well, you know, he's al- he's already a good NFL quarterback. He's already there. I mean, if there, if you're talking about being a great one, mm, that's a different conversation. But he's already he's already a good quarterback. Um, but I I think in terms of his arm strength, I don't want to say that's overrated. I don't want to say that doesn't matter because it does. It does, but you don't necessarily have to have an Elway arm or a Favre arm uh, to win games in the NFL. What you have to be is you have to be super accurate and you have to make good decisions. Uh, and he's got enough arm to do all of those things. Games in, games in the NFL aren't necessarily won by throwing the ball 60 yards down the field. You win by executing and making the throws you have to make from 10 to 15 to 20 yards. That's where the games are won and lost. Making good decisions, finding the open receiver, and putting the ball on target and on time. And he's got enough arm to do that. He's got enough arm to do that. And with, and with a better receiving core, which I certainly think he has now with A.J. Brown added to it, I think you're going to see a lot of progress in him. I, really, I, 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 think, he's going to, I think he's going to have a good year. I really do. Uh, great. Just really quick. Um, you guys not only have the best sports show in Philadelphia, you might have the best – I've been all over this country. You might have the best sports show in America. And it's not just the show. not just sports. It's all the other things you add to it to make it totally and completely entertaining. And it is the interplay between the two of you that makes it such a great, great show. And it's for me, it's absolutely must-listening on every Saturday and Sunday morning. And, Ray, I'm going to miss you. But I've been retired for, gosh, no, now about 18 years. Okay. And I will tell you it's wonderful. (laughs) Enjoy. Thank you, Steve. Steve, Steve, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. I like to hear hear from people who are retired and say, I love being retired. I love being retired. I've only heard a couple of people say, "Uh, you know what, I'm retired, but I kind of miss work or I kind of miss what I was doing or I kind of get bored. I've heard a little bit of that, but for the most part, it's people that say retirement is wonderful. One of the notes that I got uh, this week that I really appreciate was a guy who said, please tell Ray I'm going to miss him, and I'm going to miss your repartee. <clears throat> it was like hanging around with friends every time I tuned in. And I think that's what we try to do. Yeah, I think first, it is exactly all, what we did. We are friends. We don't fake that. We are friends. And the goal we've always had with this show is we're going to hang out and chat for three hours about the things that we like to talk about. Right. And we invite you to join us. Right. And that's, I mean, that's our philosophy in two sentences. That's really it. Uh, that's really it. I, I mean, I've gotten, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say I've gotten hundreds, hundreds of letters, emails, text messages come in. I can't find them. My wife finds them for me. But I mean, they've just poured in. Uh, and they've all been very much, they've all been very much in that vein. Oh, we're going to miss you. And Thanks a lot for the time, and thanks a lot for the memories, which I love all of that. But I had one guy who wrote me a week or so ago and, and, and talked about the fact that he, um, he had two favorite uncles that uh, when he was a kid growing up, he had these two uncles that were big sports fans, and he was a big sports fan. And he used to love it when his, his uncles would come over to the house because they would sit and watch games together and they would talk sports. And he said that my two uncles have passed away now, but over the last 20 years, you and Glenn have become my two uncles. And I, you know, that, that really touched me. It really touched me that this guy kind of related to the show that way. And I think that's kind of what we were trying to achieve. We wanted to make it a friendly, warm, inviting conversation that, that you could sit in on and feel like you were, ta- you were listening to friends. And that's, that's really what we kind of set it out to be. That's kind of what we tried to do every week. And it's nice to know some people can tell us that we succeeded. Waldorf and Statler. 
Yeah, well, we, there was a little of that. There was, there was a little about the, the the two cranky old guys sitting up in the opera box. That yeah, we, you know, okay. we, I mean, we did that from time yeah, to time. Don't fight that. All right, I want to give you a question that somebody sent in, which uh, leads to uh, one of my favorite stories, which is Mark said, "Please ask Ray who is his all-time favorite interview." Oh yeah, oh, that's that was Muhammad Ali. I only interviewed him once. Only interviewed him once, but it was it was memorable. It was memorable. Should I tell? Okay. Oh, yeah. um, okay, this was back in the 70s. I was working at the Philadelphia Bulletin, uh, and Muhammad Ali was training at his training camp, which was in a place called Deer Lake, which is up sort of towards Pottstown. Um, way, way, way back in the woods. I mean, you really, this was before GPS. I mean, you really had to know where you were going or you were just going to get lost. It was just, it was just about, uh, it was a collection of log cabins on top of a mountain is really what it was. And that was where he would go to train. And so, uh, he was in training camp and as his, his, um, his scheduler, his media handler, a guy named Gene Kilroy sent out this advisor that, uh, you know, next Wednesday, the champ's going to have like a media day. So if you want to come up and talk to the champ, next Wednesday's kind of the day to do it. And so uh, I was at the Philadelphia Bulletin, and our boxing writer was, a, was an older gentleman named Jack Freed who didn't feel like making the drive to Deer Lake. And so the sports editor said, well, why don't you go up and you do the interview and you watch the workout and bring the notes back to Jack, and he'll write the story. And I said, fine, it's a chance to go up and watch Ali. Why not? So I drive all the way up there, and as it turns out, there were supposed to be 12 media people there, including a couple of TV crews from England. None of them showed up. I still to this day think they got lost. I was going to say, what the hell's wrong with people? You get the chance to interview Muhammad Ali. It's like, I don't feel like it? Yeah, either, okay. either they didn't feel like it or they just couldn't uh, find no, it. No, they're nuts, but you were there alone. But So, so, so it turns audience. out that this press conference turns into a one-on-one with me and Muhammad Ali in his cabin. And... Um, we were sitting there at this little table in his cabin, and we're just talking. And because there was nobody else there, it was just the two of us. And and he was in no hurry. Uh, we he had all day, and so we we talked for an hour and a half. Wow. We talked for an hour and a half. Uh, and at a certain point, I just kind of stopped taking notes. And we at that point we were just talking, and we were talking about boxing, and we were talking about boxing history, and we began talking about great fighters, uh, and what makes a great fighter, and all that, and fascinating stuff because he was a very thoughtful guy and really knew his boxing history. I mean, he's talking about Sandy Sadler and Henry Armstrong and guys I didn't even think that he knew and he knew them, he knew them backwards and forwards. So anyway, at one point he says to me, um, did you see my fight with Joe Frazier? At this point they had only fought once. And I said, uh, yeah, I went to see the closed circuit telecast at the spectrum. Uh, and he leaned across the table and I said it was a small table. So he leaned across the table to where his nose was just inches from my nose, literally. And he said, who was you rooting for? And I, I didn't expect that. I mean, it caught me completely off guard. Uh, and you can, you can imagine with this, I'm alone in the cab and Muhammad Ali is staring me right in the eye. And the answer to the question that I know in my heart of hearts is I was rooting for Joe Frazier. But do I... Do I dare tell him? <laughs> I mean, there he is. There's Muhammad Ali. Do I dare tell him? But uh, I thought, you know what? He asked me an honest question, and I can't lie. I, I'll give him an honest answer. So I looked him right in the eye, and I said, yeah, I was rooting for Joe Frazier. <laughs> and, and he rocked back in his chair, and he said, why was you rooting for Joe Frazier? I mean, he, he seemed more puzzled than angry. 
And I said, well, you know, I am from Philadelphia. I was rooting for the home team. And he stared at me for a long time. And then he said, he said, you know, I respect you for telling me that, which I thought was an odd answer. And I thought about it a long time. And the conclusion I came to was, I think what he was saying was in his, in his day-to-day life, he's always surrounded by people that are always telling him what he wants to hear. Sure. You know, hey, champ, you're the best champ. You're the greatest sure. champ. Whatever you say, champ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the fact that I was willing to just look him in the eye and give him and say something that he clearly didn't want to hear, but that I had the guts to do it, I think that that's when he said, I respect you for telling me that. I kind of think that's what he was saying. That's great. That's absolutely great. But uh, it was, I'll hey. tell you, I've done, I've probably done a million interviews in 50 years, probably. Uh, but you ask me which is the one I'll always remember, that's the one I'll remember. That's a great one. Exit question. Did you get to write the story? Did you have to give your notes to that guy? No, I, well, I did. I, I got the notes. Uh, I brought them all back to Jack Freed. I gave them to him, and he literally threw them in the trash. He didn't even write a story. Did, did you ever get did, to write that story? Didn't even write the story. I wrote it in my book. Oh, my God. It did That that great episode was not a column in the paper in 1975, whatever it was. No. Oh, my God. That's insane. Yeah. Well, Jack. Well, I'm glad you later wrote it, and I'm glad you've told it. I, I I never wrote it. I never wrote it until I wrote my book, until I wrote Finished Business, and I obviously couldn't write the story about my 50 years without writing about that. But no, Jack. Jack just kind of looked at the notes, and most of the notes were about Ali talking about boxing history and talking about the old and fighters. That's not and what he wanted. And Jack looked at it and said, "Ah, no, no, I, I, no, that's not interesting." And he just, oh my. And God. so the whole trip up there, in terms of the bulletin readership, it it meant nothing. In terms of my own personal experience, it meant a lot. Okay, well, it's a great story. Let's uh, get out. We'll come back. Ray and Glenn. Don't forget, top of the hour. Uh, tell us your story. Best of edition. Ray and Glenn on 94 WIP. You know, if you're a Philly sports fan, then you need to check out my friends at Shive Vintage Sports. They're your home for throwback sports apparel in Philadelphia. Locally owned, Shive carries name brands as well as original designs by Philadelphia artists. So if you're thinking Philadelphia A's, either hardball or softball, Veteran Stadium, Prism, all of those old Philly memories. The next time you need some new gear before the game or you're looking for that perfect gift, and Father's Day is coming up, remember, head over to Scheib Vintage Sports. Visit them at 13th and Walnut in Center City or online at scheibsports.com and tell them that Ray sent you and you will get 15% off. Kind of Smokey Robinson, Linda Ronstadt come come returns. Ah, I love it. Is there an all time favorite Linda Ronstadt tune? Maybe we haven't gotten to it yet. Um, I always like Desperado. All right. I, she 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 often used that uh, as her uh, encore song right. to end the show, and I I thought that Desperado was was re- she could really sing it. I mean, the Eagles the Eagles were were good, but I mean, she took it to another level. All right, Ray, uh, the Phillies have a problem right now, which is that Bryce Harper is not in the lineup because he had – there we go. He has a um, uh, small tear in the ulnar collateral ligament of his right elbow that has kept him from playing. He had platelet-rich plasma injection last Sunday. Uh, Dr. Mark Pollard of Cooper Bone & Joint joins us. Hey, Doc, how are you? 
I'm doing very well, thanks. Good. We are worried about Harper. So you heard my lead in there. He had this injection last Sunday. They thought, ah, it'll take him a couple days to recover. He'll be back middle of the week. Still not back. We don't know if he's going to play tonight. Uh, tell us if you would. We talked before about the ulnar collateral, the UCL ligament. Uh, now mm-hmm. it's, it's kept him from throwing. The platelet-rich plasma injection, what's the goal of that? Well, essentially, you know, you're in your blood and plasma, there's um, factors that kind of stimulate healing, that uh, help your tissue actually repair itself. And so the, the rationale is that you draw some blood off of the, of the person who has the injury and you isolate those healing factors, uh, a lot of which are associated with platelets, which is a cell that's in the blood. And uh, once you've kind of concentrated that down into a small amount of fluid, you then, you know, inject that into the area where there's this injury. So, for instance, in uh, Bryce Harper, that would be in the region of the ulnar collateral ligament where uh, the uh, partial tear was. And the hope in doing that is that you're stimulating healing in that area. Is there, um, uh, I mean, obviously they, they said that he can't throw, and, and they're not even going to ask him to attempt to throw or play the field now for weeks. But they said swinging the bat, he can swing the bat. Well, now he can't even do that. Is, is there, um, are the two motions so different that you, can't, that you can't re-injure it or worsen the injury by swinging the bat? It would seem to me that there's always the risk that you could aggravate it just by swinging a bat. Yeah, I mean, most of the thinking is that the, the forces that go on the uh, ulnar collateral ligament or UCL with swinging the bat are uh, much lower than the forces that the, that ligament faces when you're actually throwing. And so, um, you know, it, it's it's safer, but you know, is it 100% safe? No, obviously, you know, there could be a you know, an awkward swing or something like that, and you know, you could certainly re-aggravate. Chance isn't zero, but it's less likely. All right. Dr. Mark Pollard, it is always a pleasure, and have a great week. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, and congratulations, Ray. Thank you, Doctor. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. There you go. Hope Dr. Pollard doesn't retire anytime soon. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of injured athletes out there that need good, good professional care. Yeah. My guess, it's possible he'll have to DH all year. Assuming he can come back and play and, and you know, not aggravate it. It's possible he DHs all year if we live with an outfield of Schwarber and Castellanos um, and who's ever in center field. I guess it's a possibility. I would say it's, I, you know, I, would, I, I expect him back and see him in the field at some point, but at, right now you've got to wonder, right? I very much wonder. All right, Ray, a friend of yours wants to check in and wish you the best. Uh, the postgame's never going to be the same. Barrett Brooks. <laughs> Double B, how are you? Well, you know what? Um, you, you know, Glenn just said that um, I was going to wish you the best, but actually I have selfish intentions. Scribe your notes while you're on the set. That way you don't have to write your notes as much. Just give it to me down for you. All you have to do is be there, man. That's all I'm asking. Don't retire. Please don't, man. Please don't. <laughs> I'm going to hand I say that. <laughs> I'm going to hand something over to Glenn here. I've got I still have your scouting report from when you came out of college. I had it with, you. I had it with it. me. I, I uh, Here you go. Hold on. He does. Bear, I don't know if you've ever seen it. You should give it to him, right? Let him frame it or something. Oh, he did. I did. I framed it. It's, oh. in, my, it's in my uh where my memorabilia is in my house. You I know? made I made a copy of it and gave it to I Barrett. Really but, but, but you have the original. Barrett Brooks, six foot four and a quarter, three hundred three pounds, five point one five. The speed, uh, Kansas State. God, you love the Kansas State guys, right? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, okay, the, there is, for those who have never seen these things, and maybe I'll take a picture of this and put it on social media. It is a yellow legal page with a line down the middle. On the left are the pluses. On the right are the minuses. I'll just do a couple of the pluses. Light on his feet, good athlete, can shuffle or slide, has ability to adjust and recover, improving strength. Barrett, here's the negatives. Lacks consistency, ducks his head at times. Ray, how do you notice these things? Just watching. Yeah, but how much did you get to see, for God's sake? Uh, (laughs) Gives up outside too much. Bottom line, second-round pick. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Nailed that. Nailed that, baby. What round were you drafted in, Barrett? Second round. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I got to say what a – and I, I told you this when we were doing the draft together uh, a week or so ago. Um, what an absolute pleasure it was uh, to work with you and to work with you and Seth and Michael and the governor uh, doing that show for all of these years. I mean, I've gone through a whole lot of folks from going back to Tommy Brookshire and, uh, and Johnny Sample and Vaughn Hebron sort of back at the beginning and a whole lot of guys since then. But I, I really and I so enjoyed working with you and Seth and and Michael every week that um, I, I got I'm going to miss it. I mean, even though I know this is the right decision at this point in my life, this is the right thing to do. I know when Sunday rolls around in the fall, I'm going to miss hanging out with you guys because it was that much fun. I definitely enjoyed it. And I, and I just want to say, I mean, you made me a better broadcaster because of you. I really better as a show me so much, you know, and plus through osmosis and peeking over at your notes, you know, you made me, you know who I am as far as a broadcaster, what to look at, what to say, when to say it, how to say it. I really appreciate how you've affected me and my career. So, um, you know, definitely enjoy your retirement. And I don't think you're going to get rid of me now. I mean, if I got to come over and walk your dogs, I'm still <laughs> going to be around, bro. I'm still going to be around. And I will be, too. I mean, I'm Thank not going you, anywhere. I'm not like my parents. I'm not moving to Florida. I'm going to stay here. Philly's my home, and it'll always be my home. So you'll see me around, and you and I definitely want to, I definitely want to hang out with you guys because, you know, win or lose, it was we always had fun. All right, let's take a break. We come back. Tell us your story. Best of edition. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mac, now 94, WIP. Hi, I'm Glenn Macnow. For the last two years, Ray Didinger and I have had the pleasure of conducting long-form interviews with sports legends for our Tell Us Your Story series. We've hosted players, coaches, and broadcasters, and we've learned of their triumphs and failures, their friendships and challenges. Along the way, there have been many special moments. Michael Buffer, the famous ring announcer, gave us a goosebump moment when he talked about his relationship with the charismatic heavyweight champion, Muhammad Ali. Well... As a, as a boxing geek fan and living in Lansdale, Pennsylvania when I was uh, a few years ago before, as a car salesman in those days, uh, Ollie used to have that tra- uh, training camp up in Deer Lake, Pennsylvania, which was like uh, about a two-hour drive. And in 73, I started to go there. And when he was there in training, I would go up once, twice a week and became, you know, just got to know everybody, Bundini Brown, Angelo Dundee, uh, Ali, and spend time and hang out, invited to dinner. And I remember they, uh, he gave me a, a ticket to Ali Frazier too. Um, my nose bled a little bit, but it was I was in the garden that night and uh, just um, – Great moments, and through the years, of course, when I got involved in boxing, um, you know, he used to come to events, and I always have an opportunity to, like you just played, to introduce him uh, 
as a uh, former champion in the ring. And um, just something special when he would walk in, in the ring. Uh, Bob Arum took a bunch of us to uh, China in the uh, 80s, late 80s, uh, maybe around 1990. And uh, Ali was, uh, you know, the, the main guy. And, of course, we had a fight night there. And then uh, Muhammad Ali was just so special. I remember we, we took a thing to a, an orphanage outside of Beijing. And a bunch of these little, almost just a little bigger than toddlers, sang It's a Small World. And they were all wearing cute little black and white uniforms. Now, they had no idea who Muhammad Ali was. And when they were done, Ali got up and just walked into the middle of them. And it was, it was magic. I mean, they didn't know who he was, but he was something special. Mm-hmm. And this large beautiful man and just you know he loved children and i it's just the, the memory of that is unbelievable but i one of the things i used to uh you know in the later years when he had the tremors and and his his speech was bad and everything uh i used to have to speak like directly into his ear and uh i would always say assalamu alaikum and he would whisper it back to me and then uh he would motion with his hand to you know put my ear right right to his mouth and he would say I'm still prettier than you. <laughs> <laughs> While the heavyweight champ of the 1970s was Muhammad Ali, the heavyweight champ of the NHL was the Broad Street Bullies. Their captain, Bobby Clark, spoke with us about how much different it was after winning the second Stanley Cup than it was after their first. Uh, not for me. But interestingly enough, uh, on the plane on the way home, there's lots of beer there and stuff and Eddie Van Imp was sitting just by himself contemplating and uh, they said to him you want a beer Eddie he said no Clark he said in case I don't ever get win another one I just want to remember this one properly uh-huh. and I think that was probably the way a lot of us were we wanted to make sure the first one was just a big party as soon as the game was over it started and went on for a few days I thought it was more subdued. Our team is our second one. We were much more subdued. And even during the, the parade, um, you know, we were on big floats and stuff, but it was, the crowd was just as wild and great, but the players were much more subdued. I thought much more appreciative. Yeah. When there was, oh, at the time there was um, a, a lot of the people around the NHL and a lot of hockey people, uh, had um, you know had not a, had, had not a favorable view of your team. I mean, the whole Broad Street bully thing. It played well here in Philadelphia. People here loved it, and a lot of people loved it. But there were a lot of people back back home, back in Canada, NHL people in the league office, that had a very decidedly mixed opinion of what you guys were doing. Uh, and I mean, you obviously heard it. You obviously knew it. How did you guys feel about the fact that you were winning these championships and setting records and playing the kind of hockey you were playing? And yet there were a lot of people within the league that looked at you as if there was something wrong about what you were doing. Yeah. We loved it. They were jealous. <laughs> they were jealous. You see, I mean, you still see it. And it's been in sports forever, that jealousy. People are jealous of Tom Brady, so they criticize him. People were jealous of the Flyers, so they criticize us. That's no big deal. That just makes you try harder. It makes you want to beat them more. It's not any. <laughs> 
I mean, we didn't care. Yeah. It wasn't. And, it, and they, they should have, by rights, they should have been thanking us because we filled every single building. When the Montreal Canadiens were on their four or five year tear there, they weren't filling all the buildings. Well, the flyers, because we were hated, we could go into Pittsburgh and fill the building. We could go into Oakland and fill the building. They were happy to see us coming. They criticized us, but they were happy we were there. We filled their building. Unlike the Broad Street Bullies, the 93 Phillies didn't win a world championship, but they had a similar personality. They were macho row, and when we talked to pitcher Danny Jackson, he told us about a very macho bus trip. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was actually San Francisco where we were heading to. And um, and, and Frisco, guys were talking about, oh, oh, Frisco this, oh, Frisco that, and then making excuses. And and I just had enough of it, you know, because I'm, I'm one of those guys that really you don't make excuses. You just go and you know, turn the page or you go at it and you try to do different things. And, and um and that's and that's what I did, and I and got tired of listening to it. So that's when I got up and used a bunch of choice words and and told them, you know, I'm tired of hearing about this. Just get your butts out there and play and do what you're supposed to be doing, and stop worrying about the other stuff. And I said, then we're going to go there and we're going to win three out of four from Frisco because we were on a, uh, I think four games out there, and so I headbutted the luggage rack and then. Uh, had a nice little cut on there, and Keenan Cavillia turned to me and goes, DJ, you're bleeding, you're bleeding. I'm like, <laughs> and I turned to him, and I said, so? And as I said, so, because the blood is running down my mouth and spitting blood at him. <laughs> so then he, he said, turn on the turn on the uh, lights, DJ's hurt, turn on the lights. And so they turn on the bus lights, and I turned and looked at, and then I see a bunch of these, you know, hard-nosed guys all turn and go, oh, you know, I'm just like getting <laughs> some of them getting sick, and it's like okay, <laughs> that's good. But 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 anyway, got the point across, and then after that, we, we I think we went three out of four, or two out of three there, and then went down to Los Angeles and and won whatever we did there. But we ended up having a winning West Coast as opposed to the uh, some of the losing West Coast that we've had before. So it was worth the seven stitches, right? I mean, that's what I heard. It was, a, it, yeah, I got seven stitches. So, but it was worth it, right? Yeah, I didn't get no stitches. That's one thing I wouldn't do. As a just butterfly, they wanted <laughs> to take me to the and go go and, and get stitches, and I'm like, well, forget that. Just put those butterfly things, and I'll be fine tomorrow. <laughs> so the funny thing about it, though, a little bit the next day, I had the butterfly stitches, you know. So I go in, and first thing I do is I change and then put on my hat and I went, uh oh, you know, that hurts. It's right on the hat seam, so I had to wear my <laughs> hat up a little bit like one of those uh scenes you'd see on uh uh one of those little leaguers, you know, head yeah. up on top, not all the way down. Talking about nicknames, one of the best ever was given to Billy Johnson, the football star out of Chichester. In our conversation, Billy spoke about how and when he got the great moniker White Shoes. Yeah, that did start at Chichester High. All started with uh, <laughs> sitting on the porch uh, out front one summer evening. No, some, no, it was a summer day. Matter of fact, I think school just let out, and uh, I was going to play high school ball that year and uh, be becoming a quarterback. And we just start talking about things. And uh, a good friend of the family, a good friend of my older brother, uh, asked me, oh, "If you think you're so good, why don't you wear white shoes?" And, you know, at that time, Joe Namath was wearing them. He said, don't you be just like him. Go ahead. And uh, 
once again, a dare always gets you in trouble. So uh, I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And I took the shoes to a nice little uh, shoe shop, shoe repair shop, mm-hmm. and and they dyed the shoes. I mean, and he dyed the shoes. I forgot to get the guy's name. That's, but it was such a good, um, it was such a good shoe repair shop. It looked like they were brand new. I took two pair up there. I don't know why I did it. I guess just to, just thinking I, uh, uh, I could do it and try to get away with something. I guess I don't know. But I, you, I accepted the challenge. <laughs> how did your coach respond, your high school coach? Uh, I, that's, that's the scary part. I always leave that out at first because I knew I was taking a chance. I mean, sure. He's likely to say, yeah, yeah, he's likely to say take him off. And that was Coach Apicello. You know, he was a heralded uh, high school football coach in the area along with Phil Marion. And uh, those two guys used to battle. But I did, I did know when I went to camp, I didn't know what to say, what to do. I just warmed. I didn't say a word. And and I had another backup pair, but they were white also. So I I would have been up the creek if he had told me to take yeah. them off. But uh, any day, so one day after uh, we were practice and we were going to have a scrimmage, I think later that afternoon, he pulled me aside and asked me, hey, what's up with the white shoes? And I told him, I said, the only thing I could think of was it made me run faster. <laughs> he said, okay. <laughs> he just, and if you know Coach Apicello, he didn't, he didn't like all that the frills and thrills, you know, no hot dogs or anything like that. He just, he just like guys play hard nosed football. <laughs> and he just said, okay. And that was it. So fortunately for me, our team had a good scrimmage and I had a fairly decent uh, game and he never said anything else. Never. I was so glad I was, Oh, you don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, the first... And that was after like two days of practice. Well, the first person that I think ever put it in print, uh, ever attached the name to you, was Ed Gebhardt, who was the sports editor of the Delco Times. I guess it was then the Chester Times, uh, in which he referred to you as as Billy White Shoes. Um, And then I talked to Ed, you know, I talked to Ed later, and he said that the Chichester offense, you were a quarterback on that team. And he said the the Chichester offense, they had two plays. It was Billy Sweep. It was Billy Sweep right, and it was Billy Sweep left. But it worked. It, it did. We were do our rollout passes. Every every now and then we do some drop back passes. But yeah, Mr. Gephardt was really responsible for giving me that name, and I thought it was kind of hokey at first because it was Family Day and uh, we were playing, I guess, Chester High, who had the number one defense in the county at that time, and so as you know, state would have it. I had a good game. The team had a good game because we were up playing. We were up for that game, and uh, it was family day. Your parents came out, and, you know, it was just a great day uh, for parents and, and for the team itself. So at the, the next day, it was in a paper, I guess. It was blazing Billy White shoes. I said, oh, man, gee whiz. It's bad enough that I'm wearing white shoes, but to get labeled like that, then later on, I mean, I didn't mind. I just thought it was rather hokey. But, boy, am I glad he did that. So, it's Mr. Tough. Gephardt is truly responsible. <laughs> all these years. Me. All these years, correct. Philly native Earl Monroe had many nicknames, but the most famous was Earl the Pearl. And he became an NBA legend playing for the world champion New York Knicks and later a local legend playing in Sunny Hills Baker League. Well, I never really thought about it like that, to tell you the truth. Uh you know, I realized, you know, that, you know, we were, you know, it, it was New York. And, and whatever New York did, we, you know, there was a lot of emphasis on it. 
Um, but me going to New York, the thing in a nutshell was in the back of my mind because I like to dress and I like to do things, you know, was that you know, he already had Walt Frazier. I couldn't be the same you know, same person as Walt Frazier was. Yeah, n- nobody so could I dress to, like that. That's true. Yeah, so I had to kind of like, you know, most of the things, I've had to kind of take a back seat in New York and just kind of be that professional person so to speak, that, uh, you know, that people would expect me to be and uh, take some of my flamboyance out of the game, out of my game, and uh, just be, you know, just be. Um, And it it, it worked out. You know, I was two different people. I was, you know, as I played basketball, I was one guy. And then as off the court, I was another guy. I became a little more. Uh, introverted and, and such, but uh, you know, in the long run, I mean, even till today, I mean, people respect the fact of what I did and how I did it, and yeah. uh, you know, I guess the the end result is 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 what it's all about. The people still talk about that Knicks team and the way they played and how much fun they were to watch and and how they really kind of epitomized, um, for the lack of a better term, team basketball. The way everybody shared the ball, they moved it around. Uh, and you had great players. I mean, yeah, I mean, everybody on the team was practically a Hall of Famer. Uh, you had Bill Bradley. You had Walt Frazier, who we've talked about. Willis Reed, Dave DeBusher, Phil Jackson's coming off the bench. I mean, it was, it was a great team. And you played a, a really distinctive brand of team basketball that Red Holtzman demanded. Uh, and I, you know, for you being such a freelance player all your life, I just wonder how how easily it was, how easy it was for you to slip into that and just become one of one of the guys, sort of one of the orchestra. Well, I think the the, the big part about that, you know, going to the Knicks is that uh, the players themselves respected me really well. You know, Willis would, would come in and say, "Man, when, when we not when we weren't playing you on on Sunday, you know, TV, you know, I'd be right there looking at you, man, because you'd be doing it." You know, and, uh, you know, and the Butcher, he was the first one that came and shook my hand and, and, and welcomed me there. And, of course, Bradley, we had played against us each other in the Baker League. And, he, you know, he was real supportive. So, you know, it was a great, you know, kind of atmosphere to, to, to be around. You know, aside from the fact that, um, you know, when we got to the playoffs, the first, first year when we lost to the Lakers in the championship, and then the second year we won it against the Lakers, in, you know, in the championship game. So, you know, the biggest part of all that is that, you know, when you call plays, everybody knows your plays per se, you know. But we got over because we freelance in the latter part. You know, we would call plays, but you know, the plays weren't happening. And then we freelance, and that was, you know, that was my style. So yeah. it, it it really fit right in. For people who didn't live through that era, I don't know if they can appreciate just what a unique, what a unique thing <laughs> the Baker League was. I mean, it was it was this summer basketball league uh, that uh, you had all these teams that represent local businesses. You know, Nate Ben's Reliable had a team, mm-hmm. Ducky's Dashery had a team. You had all, you, <laughs> Ducky's Dashery, Ducky, Ducky. <laughs> you, you had all of these teams that had commercial names, but they were st- they were stuck with they were stocked with NBA players. I mean, uh, superstars, and because of the respect that everybody had for Sonny. These guys would come down and they would play at this little church gym, the uh, Bright Hope Baptist Church in North Philadelphia. And, Glenn, that place would be packed on game night because nobody knew who was going to walk through the door because all these guys were on the roster, but you never knew from game to game who was going to show up. 
but people would come and just fill that gym and just wait for the door to open. And, you know, maybe tonight Bill Bradley walks in, and maybe tonight Earl Monroe walks in, and the games were just magical. I mean, that was an unbelievably great time, Earl. It really was. Yeah, it, it was. It, you know, and, and as far as, you know, the players were concerned, I mean, you know, everybody was – they played in Philly, played in the Baker League. And, um, you know, we'd have parties after the game and so forth and so on. I can remember being in uh, Bright Hope Baptist Church. And the funny thing about this is that nobody would believe that Sonny wasn't paying people to come to play. But guys would just come to play because it was great competition. And, you know, it, it bettered their games and whatnot. And uh, we were at Bright Hope Baptist Church. At halftime, we have to come out because there wasn't any air conditioning. <laughs> we have to come out, wring our clothes out, wring our you know, jerseys out and whatnot, <laughs> and to, to get back in to play the second half. And it was just a fun time, a lot of uh, camaraderie, a lot of great relationships um, were built during that time with guys that w- weren't necessarily from Philly but came in to play the game. We'll be back with more of the best of Tell Us Your Story, including Deuce Daly talking about breaking into coaching and Billy Cunningham on coaching Moses Malone. This is Ray Dinger and Glenn Mack, now sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. Welcome back to the best of Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. One of our favorite interviews was Phil Martelli, the longtime coach of St. Joe's University, now with the University of Michigan. In this part of the interview, Phil talked about how he discovered and then recruited the great Jameer Nelson. Um, The first time I saw Jameer, they were playing – Chester was playing in a district final, which is not unusual, right, Ray? Like they play in district (laughs) finals all the time from Chester. All the time. And state finals. Um, And I said to the assistants, uh, Matt Brady and Monte Ross, I'm I'm going out to Villanova. I want to see this little kid from Chester play. And they both said to me at the same time, uh, he's too small. You, you're not. He's too small. And I went out there, and um, he completely dominated the game and took no shots in the first half. Completely dominated the game. Took no shots in the first half. What, wasn't that your style you said in college? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I called both assistants at, at, uh, at halftime, and I said, the kid that's too small – uh, you're fired and you're fired because that kid's going to be the best guard in the history of St. Joe's basketball if I can get him. And uh, the game ended. Chester won the district. Uh, uh, I went up to Fred Pickett, who was the, the legendary coach at Chester High, and said, Fred, you told me this kid was good. You didn't tell me he was great. And from that point forward, whatever, every day, every day, whatever it took to get Jameer uh to come, uh, and I did, and I honestly believed that he would become the best guard uh, to play at St. Joseph's, and and uh, he certainly proved me right and made me a pretty good coach for a couple years. <laughs> when Deuce Staley joined us, he talked about how he got into coaching and how he mentored a young star named LaShawn McCoy. Well, you, you go back to 2010 when I first came back. Um, getting an opportunity. I remember Andy Reid calling me. I remember him saying, hey, man, uh, what are you doing? I was like, 
Um, doing a little radio, doing a little TV, you know, I'm relaxing. Now, guys, you got to remember, anytime you got that, you get that early phone call from Andy Reid after playing for him, you're either late, you're about to get fined. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, something's about to go on here, you know. So I had to remember I, I retired. I'm like, hey, <laughs> I can take this phone call. It's okay, you know. <laughs> so I remember him calling in and he said, hey, dudes, I always thought that, you'll be a hell of a coach. He said, uh, won't you come back and do the minority coaching program um, here with us and uh, see if you like it or not. So right then and there, I started thinking, oh, my God, being a coach, they sleep on the couch. They eat on the couch. They get very familiar with the couch hmm. in the office. So I was like, whoa, 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 coach. He said, hey, just come on back. I was like, cool. Came back, uh, fell in love. And that's when the relationship between myself and McCoy started. I remember coming through the doors in 2010, and I think he got drafted in 2009. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, coming through the door and just watching this kid. And, you know, he was a kid at the time, young, you know, just a bunch of energy, but didn't really know how to play the game yet. Skills were off the charts had all the skills in the world, could make people miss, could block, could catch, could do it all, but still didn't really know the game. And I remember grabbing him uh, after practice. I would grab him and I would say, let's go through the steps. Let's go through the read. Let's go through your responsibility. And I remember saying, oh, man, we got to do this again. I said, yeah, we got to do it again. So let's go through the steps. Let's go through the read. Let's go through your responsibility. And I remember keeping them after practice a couple of times, even when they had a short practice. He was so anxious to go, so anxious to go. I said, what I'm about to teach you now is going to carry you throughout your life. I said, these are the tools. I'm going to give you a toolbox, and you're going to be able to open the lid on the toolbox and apply the tool that's needed. I said, I just need a little bit of time. So I was able to teach him this, the inside zone, able to teach him, you know, just little things that I was taught by Ted at the time because mm -hmm. Ted was our, his running back coach and Ted was mine. Um, I was able to teach him those things. And I never forget, camp was over, and uh, I'm going to tell Andy and the rest of the coaches I really appreciate it. You know, I really love being back around football. So I'm jumping, grabbing my bags, getting ready to jump in the van, here comes this little skinny kid running across campus. Yo, dudes, where you going? So I looked back and I said, home. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I got to go. He said, no, no, no. He ran up. He was like, listen, you can't leave me now. He said, I need you. And I said, you know, McCoy, I got my family back home. I need to go back and talk to him about being a part of this. I said, got to talk to Andy, got to talk to Howie, and see if I fit. And then, of course, 11 years later, the rest is history. Yeah, for sure. Well, you worked your way. You, I mean, you worked your way up. You go from that from the position that Andy brings you into to coaching special teams. You're doing quality control. Right. Then you move up to running backs coach in 2013. Uh, and that year, you're the running backs coach, and the Eagles lead the team in rushing. So obviously, you were so that, you you had really found you had really found a home there. 
Right. So that was the Andy part. Now we're going to get to the chip part because you got, you, I think you asked the question, Glenn, maybe yeah. you said that, you know, the difference between Andy and chip. Yeah. Um, I, I tell you what, man, both are hell of a coaches. I, it, these guys work their ass off. It's all recursing, but th- right. that's what you get from both. They work their ass off. And we, we know about Andy um, sleeping in the office. Now, Chip came in early and just, you know, full steam ahead. And one of the things that you saw with Chip was when he came in with a system, he stuck to that system. Um. So it was fast-paced, um, as we call it, fast-break football, fast-paced. It was the no huddle. Um, and, and both of those guys, you know, were very similar in their approach and their attack. They wanted to put up a lot of points, which every coordinator and head coach wants to do that. Um, they wanted to attack the weakness, and that's what Chip did. He wanted to attack your weakness, and he did the same thing. Here's where they were different. Chip would do it running the ball, and he wanted to do it throwing. Mm-hmm. So, and you saw that because of what you just said, we led the league in rushing. Um, and that had a lot to do with McCoy, offensive line, and just going out there, just being redundant with some of the calls. So a lot of things didn't change. It's just uh, the mentality change from throwing it a lot to running it. Doug Collins had a long and legendary career as a player, coach, and broadcaster. One of the highlights, as he told us, was the opportunity to coach young Michael Jordan. Well, <laughs> I, I, I wish I would have known when I'd taken the job how good Michael really was going to be because when I went and going, I mean, Michael had just come off the playoffs where he had had a broken foot uh, during the year. He had missed, I think, all but 18 games. He came back in the playoffs. And, I mean, the show he put on in Boston Garden against the Celtics, uh, I think Larry Bird had a, uh, a comment one time. He said, I, I just played against the guy uh, who uh, – I just played against either God or somebody who was disguising himself as Michael Jordan. Hmm. But uh, the, the, the time with Michael, um, the one thing uh, among a lot that Michael always taught me is he felt like if he was on the team, we always had a chance to win. If I'm on the team, we got a chance to win. And I grew up with him. I grew up being a coach with him. I, I hope that I helped him. I know he helped make me a better coach. Uh, and uh, But I, I will tell you, if I, I, I really want to get this story in, but my first game coaching in Madison Square Garden, uh, UB Brown, Patrick Ewing, Bill Cartwright, my first game ever as an NBA coach, two minutes to go in the game. I used to soak through my suits because I sweated so much. Uh, just my body temperature so timeout two minutes to go game tied my first uh first game as an nba coach come over to the timeout getting ready i get the chalkboard getting ready to sit down and i see this hand come out and i look up it's michael i had chewed my gum to a powder around my lips so it looks like i had white powder around my lips <laughs> michael reaches out and he hands me a cup of water he said drink that uh, coach drink the water i'm not going to let you lose your first game came out scored the next 10 points of the game we win we go to cleveland he has 50 in the game we go to cleveland i think he has 47 we won our first two road games and i go this is going to be this is going to be some kind of ride i'm going to be on here with this uh this guy named michael jordan but never have i been around a more competitive human being a stronger willed people don't understand how fundamentally sound he was guys so all those things he was doing in the air 
because he was so well coached by Dean Smith. His footwork was impeccable. His drive was the, the greatest I've ever been around. And I'm thankful that I had those three years with him. And then when he wanted to come back and play in Washington, he asked me if I would come and be there with him to try to develop the young team. So yeah. five years of Michael Jordan and uh, never once did he disrespect me and never once did I ever feel like he didn't believe in me as a coach. And so those, those were two things that he gifted me that I'm forever uh, thankful for. You know, it, I, I always thought in that time coaching Jordan in both places, both in Chicago and in Washington, uh, your own playing career probably was good preparation for that because, I mean, Michael was at that, he was a, he was more than a basketball celebrity and he was a global celebrity. I mean, he was probably yep. one of the, he, along with Ali, might have been the most recognizable guy globally in sports in the whole world. And I kind of thought that the years that you spent with the Sixers, with all those larger-than-life personalities that you had as teammates, probably was a, was a pretty good education in, in how to deal with celebrity and sport. Because, you know, Michael, in many ways, in the way he turns and carried himself in the public, was not unlike Dr. J. Correct. The very good, very good analogy, uh, Glenn and Ray, that uh, play, I, I, you asked me a while ago about Jewish basketball royalty. I mean, he was the first guy. Well, Elgin Baylor, I didn't get to see Elgin play, but Elgin was one of the first guys who played in the air, who did these spectacular things. Well, Julius did, and he brought him over for the ABA. And, uh, and, and so, yes, I was around that. I mean, guys, when we're chatting with the Bulls, just think about this now. Michael Jordan, my first three years that I coached with the Bulls, we traveled commercially. We didn't have a plane. Yep. So we would go to the airport. You know, it was, we, we'd run over and, and grab a hot dog or grab something to eat. We would sleep on the plane. But can you imagine today uh, with players traveling uh, commercial and today the way, the way everybody is, is such a celebrity? But it, it did help me. And, uh, you know, I, I think one of the things, you know, I, I think I had a mind that was constantly trying to figure out a way that I could best help him. And, uh, and I think we both grew together in that way. But the shot that he hit in, in Cleveland, uh, I always felt that was the defining moment that where the, the Bulls were on the rise now. We beat Cleveland. We go on, uh, beat the Knicks. We lose to, to, to the Pistons in six. The next year they lose in seven. And then they're on the run for the six championships. But, um, yeah, uh, it, was, <laughs> it was quite a time. And, and, and Michael used to say to me, he said, Doug, these people are coming out here to watch me put on a show. He said, so I've got to show them something every night they've never seen. And at the same time, we want to win basketball games. And, and guys, I will tell you also, many a day we would check in a hotel at night, early in the morning. There would be 200 to 300 people standing outside waiting to see Michael. He was like Elvis, waiting to see him, maybe him do an uh, interview or uh, not an interview, but an autograph. So, yeah, I, I saw that celebrity up close and personal in my first coaching job. Billy Cunningham won an NBA championship as a player with the 76ers, and he later won a championship as coach. And the key to that was the signing of Moses Malone. When Billy joined us, he talked about how Moses came to the Sixers. Well, a lot of credit to Harold Katz. Harold was willing to put up, I think it was $2 million a year. You know, now it's hip change, right? But um, $2 million a year. What happens is I'm in North Carolina playing golf in Pinehurst, and I I'm with Jerry, all the basketball people you can mention, from Dean Smith to Jerry West. I don't know if Jordan was there. or No, Jordan wouldn't have been there. He was still in college. Um, Kevin Lockery, Rod Thornton, et cetera. <coughs> and uh, I get a phone call after nine holes 
You have to be in New York City at the 42nd Street Hyatt. What? Come on, we got Moses here. I run. I ask somebody to take my golf clubs. I run, get into Newark Airport. I go to get in the cab. Guy said, "I said, how much to take me to the the hotel?" Guy says, "Like eighty dollars." I said, "You got to be kidding me." Fast forward now. I run over and I get one of the buses. Take a bus into New York City. Sit down at this table, and they're saying, "Now, would you please take two million a year?" I said, "Wait a second. I got to tell you what I just did." And it's not even my account. I, this is the team would pay for this. And I took a bus to get over here instead of a cab. And we're talking, you know, seven figures. But it was, uh, everyone got a laugh out of that. But I ended up spending a few moments with Moses there, explained how we wanted to play, him to dominate the boards, get the ball out, let us run. And if we didn't have something, we would get him the ball inside at the other end. And he was he was a dream to coach. He was a dream to coach. Um, for me, I had heard other coaches had issues. I don't know why, um, but if you remember, Ray, you when Glenn at the end of the season that year, we're playing the Knickerbockers, a Sunday afternoon game, and we're beating them by large amounts going into with a few minutes to play. And I take Moses out. But Moses had not had an offensive rebound. I said, what's wrong? He says, my knee. So that was it. He goes in the back with the doctor. Doctor says, hey, we've got a serious issue. I'm not sure if it's the thigh or it's the knee, but uh, you're going to have to keep him, sit him down, and we've got to work on him physically. He won't be able to get through the playoffs. And at that time, we were going down to play Atlanta. And Kevin Lockery, who was a dear friend at the time, uh, was fighting for a playoff spot. And we lose to Atlanta. And I was accused by Pete Fessy of dumping the game because Moses didn't play. And I was not. And at that time, uh, Hubie Brown, was. we weren't getting along too well. And uh, it was an interesting period of time. Let's leave it at that. And he obviously – he didn't touch a basketball till. Uh, the first game in the playoffs. Uh, in those days, you got a week off if you won the division. And uh, that, that's how serious the situation it was. And we try to keep it quiet. Wow. So how, so how, did, you, how did you manage it? How did you manage it through the series? Because, I mean, Moses played pretty much every, every meaningful minute throughout the whole postseason. How did physically, what did you and the doctors do to keep him on the court? I put my head down and said, Moses, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most compelling interviews we ever did on Tell Us Your Story was with Eagles Hall of Famer Brian Dawkins. In this part, Brian talked about battling his demons with depression. I will be a human being a lot longer than I have been a <laughs> a professional football player, right? So being able to cope with life and the ups and downs of life, it does not matter if you played 16 years or you've worked 16 years in another profession, life hits you in the face. And one of the things, a couple of things that I didn't realize is that I didn't do a good job of handling emotion. So I wore my emotions on my sleeve, but there are other times that I kept things inside. And that's one of the worst things that we can do as men. We're not taught how to communicate, how to share our emotions. even going back to childhood, you know, when I would play with my he-man, it wasn't a bunch of conversation going on. 
or army men. It was just, you know, fighting, right? It's not a whole bunch of, but if you look at my, my sister or my daughters, you know, when they play their, their dolls, they're having conversations, they're drawing, you know, it's drama, it's some laughter. So being able to communicate is something that it took me a long time to learn. And that was one of the things that, that affected me in a negative way of using my anger uh, after being pent up for a long time and going in the fits of rage from time to time. And so that is not something that is conducive to the man that I am, the, the man that I wanted to be. So I needed to get help. I really needed to get help. And it was I was blessed to have Connie in my life, my beautiful wife, and then Emmett. And they talked me into going to get help, to talk to a counselor so that I can begin to talk about those things that have been pent up in me that, that I have been carrying for so long. And, you know, the way that I look at it is if you carry things and you try to lock, let's say you have a new house, but in one of the houses you've left some old, you know, some old garbage and some old trash and some old food in there, but you just close the door and you don't never go in there again and you think it's okay. What begins to happen is that odor begins to, seep through the walls, man. It begins to come through the door. So even though you're in another room, you begin to smell what's in that other room. It's the same thing with our emotions. If we just try to, we just try to lock things up and think we can just hold on to this pain, no, that pain erodes that area and begins to leak into other areas of your life. So you may be short patient with somebody. You may step or you may do things that you wouldn't normally do because you become a lot uh, angry a lot faster. Or you start to, in my case, you try to mask the pain by by drinking. I'm beginning to drink a little bit too much. And so those are the things that we do, and I recognize them. I know that there's other things that I could have been doing, but I didn't know that then. So getting that help and then developing a, a disciplined life of how I live my life, um, how I start my day, how I go through my day, and how I end my day now, I call it the blueprint challenge if you go on BrianDawkins.com. That's what that's where it is. And if you adapt something like that into your life, it allows you to live a life, man, a, 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 a ever growing life, not a pent up, angry, frustrated, mad at the world. The world is happening. Things are happening to me, not for me. No, things are happening for me and through me, not to me anymore. Right. Because I know how to be emotionally available to my family, how to be emotionally available to even my friends when we have conversations, that I don't have to have this this, this chest up, nothing hurts me, never cry. There's a, there's a time and place for that. Like, I couldn't be crying on the football field, right? But, but when you're not on the football field, if you're not in those situations, there's other times that I can use that same energy that I used on the football field because energy is transferable. I can use that same energy to stay, to be focused on my family, to be focused on something I care about, to, to actually listen to my daughter as she goes through 50 stories after, and I thought she was going to tell me one, right? So well, those are the things that I recognize now that I can do and it's in me to do. I just had to learn. I had to go through that painful place in order for me to grow the muscles that I have in this area because sometimes when we go through those painful positions, because anybody who's listening on here probably has played sports before. And if you played any sports, you've had to lift weights and you will never be able to get stronger. If you lift the same weight over and over again, 
So sometimes you have to put more weight on the bar to push that weight. And by pushing that weight, greater weight, it gets you stronger. So sometimes you have to, I look at, I look at some of the painful things in my life as a workout partner, right? This is getting me stronger for something. I don't know. I don't, it's not comfortable in the minute. Like conditioning tests aren't comfortable. Conditioning is not comfortable. Lifting weights is not always comfortable, but I know that when I push through, I put on some more weight, I'm going to get stronger for whatever's coming in my life going forward. So, I mean, I'll continue to talk on this, you know, and use up the rest of the time, but this is extremely important for me to be able to speak on because there's so many men, and, and, and I say it like this, that silence is literally killing us as men. Silence is literally killing us. This has been the best of Tell Us Your Story. The hour is sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. Well, Ray, that uh, that brings to an end what was really a special thing uh, for us. Uh, we did 108 of those episodes. And uh, one of the questions that came in when I solicited people to ask questions for you as you're retiring is, is there anybody you didn't get? for tell us your story uh, either because they refused or just not available or whatever that you wished you would have been able to get. Yeah. And it wasn't for a lack of trying. I mean, we tried pretty much everybody, Um, but I wish we could have gotten Carly Lloyd. Yeah. We didn't make any headway there. Because she had a great career and we, we tried, but we never were able to connect with her. And I wish we could have gotten Billie Jean King. Uh, and I yeah, was the one. We had a lead on that too. I was trying. I was the one who was trying to chase her down because she published a book. She published a book about her life um, a year ago. And usually, people that have books are more than willing to come out and talk about it. Uh, and I sent numerous, uh, numerous emails up to their publicist for the publishing house and just said, "Hey, would love to have Billie Jean on to tell her story." And they never got back to us. So those those were two that I wish we could have gotten and we missed. The two from my end were um, Tio, who would have been terrific yeah i'm sure he would uh and i sent him an email to his personal email address because uh, i've corresponded with him in the past and he just didn't get back to me and i sent it three times so, over the course of time so if he didn't respond three times that was it right and as far as i know the only person who ever just gave us a flat out no was lindros right and it was odd because it came right at a time that he was named a flyers ambassador right so you figure like this probably goes with the job, right? But he didn't. He didn't do it. He yeah, I thought the neighbor. timing. I thought the timing was good because we both wanted him because he's a huge figure in Philadelphia sports, and obviously came in here with great fanfare and left under controversial circumstances. And it was just at a time when he was being welcomed back into the fold. And you thought, yeah. oh, this is perfect. Yeah, and I and, interviewed him when he was here. Uh, I had him on the show when he was here, and I, I was certainly not, you know, in his in. Eric Lindros and his family have an enemies list, and I was not among it. Right. Whatever. Right. But that was the only that was the only no we got from anybody. And but overall, 108 of them, uh, and they were they were great. And you know, I give you credit. I mean, you're the one who came up with the idea to do this, uh, and it was, you know, it wasn't exactly something that we thought was going to be an enduring part of the show. We thought it would just get us through the pandemic. But people liked it so much, we kept it going for more than two years. Yeah. All right. I want to, we have time for at least one more story uh, that people have asked questions for. And somebody, and, and I know this will lead into a story. Somebody said, uh, I know that Ray has covered football and baseball and hockey and basketball. Uh, the guy said, I've heard him talk about wrestling. They said, did Ray ever cover horse racing? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I covered one horse race. Tell the story. It's great. Oh, I covered the Belmont. I covered the Belmont the year that Seattle Slough was was going for the Triple Crown. I didn't do Kentucky Derby. I didn't do Preakness. But at this point, I was the columnist for the Philadelphia Bulletin. Uh, and the sports editor said, well, you got to go up and do the you got to go up and do the Belmont. Seattle Slough's going for the Triple Crown. I said, Jack, I don't know the first thing about horse racing. I really don't. He said, well, it's the biggest sports story of the year, and you're the columnist. you got to go do it. So that week, um, like Wednesday or Thursday that week, I drove all the way up to Belmont, the Belmont racetrack. And there's no, there's no PR department. There's no publicist. There's nobody to help you. You just drive into this barn area, and you just park, and you just start walking, looking in barns. All the horses look alike. <laughs> Uh, where, where, where's to you, Seattle? probably not to an expert. Yeah, where's Seattle Slough? I'm mean, asking people. Where, and so they point. They, they finally show me to the barn where Seattle Slough is. And I get there right at the – and this is like crack at dawn because this is when all track writers do their work. They, they get there for the morning workout. And so I get there just at the time that the Seattle Slough's trainer, I can't remember his name, uh, is, is having his press conference. And he's talking to all – and there's a group of about 20 guys standing around him, and they're all the veteran track guys. I mean, these are all the guys that have been covering horse racing for a million years. I'm walking in with no knowledge and no nothing, and I'm, st- I'm t- taking the old reporter trick that I'm just going to stand off to the side here and just let these other guys ask the questions, and I'll write down the answers, and I'll, re- I'll make up a story out of what, what he says to their questions. I'm not intending to say a word. And – the trainer keeps looking over at me at the far end, and I, I'm unfamiliar, and I'm not saying anything. And at one point, he says to me, who are you? And I said, well, I'm Ray Didinger from the Philadelphia Bulletin. And he said, well, are you just going to stand there? Or are you going to ask? Really? He said, are you just going to stand there, or are you actually going to ask a question? He called you out for, for y- listening? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And, uh, I mean, I've been to news conferences. Not everybody asks a question. Well, I, I, was, this, this, I was so conspicuous. I mean, I was so conspicuous. I didn't look like anybody else. I was, so, I was like 20 years younger than anybody else. And, okay. You know, and I guess I really just kind of looked stupid standing there. So he said, okay, well, are you going to ask a question, or are you just going to stand there? And at that moment... Only one thing came into my mind, and it was the only question I had ever had in all my years of watching horse racing on television. And so I asked it, and as soon as I asked it, I thought, I am asking the dumbest question that has ever been asked in sports journalism. And that question was, does the horse know it's in a race? Okay. And if I, you could have I, I love that question. If you could have seen the look that these other writers gave to me, and – and I thought, as soon as I was saying it, I thought, oh, my God, that is the dumbest thing that anybody has ever said. But remarkably, the trainer, who could have just said, get out of here, said, you know what? That's a pretty good question. And then he went into this whole thing about some horses really understand competition and some, other ho- some horses really do run to win, get out front. And he said, and there are other horses that are just running because somebody's hitting them with a whip and don't have any sense of it at all. He said, but one of the things that separates the really great horses is the fact that they want to get out front, that they are competitive. And mother, but not all horses are, but the great ones universally are. And then he went into a whole thing about he thought Seattle Slough had that same quality. So it turned out to be, when I asked it, I thought it was the dumbest question ever, but the trainer actually said it was a good question. Uh, my wife asked me that question two weeks ago when we were watching the Kentucky Derby, and I w- related that story. So when all the other uh, old horse riders there gave a snarky guffaw as you asked the question. Mm-hmm. 
when the answer came from the trainer, did they all give you a different look, more respect? They all started writing it down. Well, there you go. <laughs> there, you, there you have it. All right. We have time just for one. And I'm sorry, Dan Wilson, we'd love to get to you for more. But Dan Wilson, our producer, do you have one thing we forgot to talk about? Yes. Yeah, so I had to make sure we get this in as I'm producing kind of like Ray's final shows here. And, you know, I've been a fan of you guys for a while. When I first started producing you guys, obviously, I told you the story of my dad and I visiting you guys at the final broadcast of the Spectrum. Like, I've been listening for way back, and the station for way back. And one thing I did not know about a Ray Dinger on-air moment uh, until I started working here is Ray has a funny side that, you know, doesn't come out as often as everyone knows or the people who are fortunate enough that get to work with him actually see. But his voices, whether it's the guys up in Boston on the Super Bowl pregame, uh, we're going, oh, we'll, we'll be playing that. We'll before, be playing that, I'm sure. But he also does run. voices, apparently, of our coworkers here at 94 WIP. And this is one of him doing Paul Jolivitz. This is sort of Paul at 2 a.m. after he hasn't had a phone call for about 20 minutes. It sort of goes like this. What's the matter with you people? What's, I, I always heard about some passionate sports. So why is anybody calling up here? We have many, many issues to discuss, and nobody's calling. What's that the matter with you right. people? We're going to a break now. When I come back, I want to see a full board, okay? A full board. Happy <laughs> <laughs> All Sports Radio time no, is 2.15. <laughs> And as someone who's you know worked many nighttime hours here with Paul and yeah. things of that nature, it's, it just really hits the funny bone in a different way. <laughs> Ray, it's so great. I, I, did, I know you get a little. I yeah, but I did it. I did it affectionately. I wasn't trying to make fun of Paul because I, I really I really like Paul very nice, much. By the way, nicest guy in the world, Paul. He's not a great. He's the greatest he's guy really in the world. A nice guy. He really he really is. And I, and I and I did it. I did it jokingly and affectionately. And I you know I I, I hope I didn't hurt his feelings. But it was. You know what? Uh, what is it? Uh, imitation, sincere. Serious form of flattery. Of flattery. I believe go. there's truth in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you, Dan. So we will be back to do this tomorrow. Uh, I know next week on Saturday, as we do the show, the station is uh, planning a big party. So we'll be doing the show through the party. We'll see how that works. And then Sunday, the last one, you have graciously agreed we're going to do a. Because I, I swear to God, hundreds of people have asked me this. As we talk about it, we're going to do a final Ray Dinger tell us your story. Oh, okay, okay, okay. All right, it'll be it'll keep us from being two old men blubbering on the air. Yeah, I'm trying to avoid that at all costs. All right, par- partner, I will see you bright and early tomorrow. Dan Wilson, great job. Uh, Go Birds Radio coming up next with James and Elliot. Stay tuned for those guys. We will see you in the morning right here on 94 WIP. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 
Check your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.